Hey, welcome to yet another episode of Scale Up Pod. And uh, today we have uh, someone with us uh, that has been very fairly demanded from every episode we have shot until now. People have commented that uh, please bring Dr. Kailash Nath to the episode. So we have him today. Thank you so much for taking out your time. Thank you. Right. Um, so we will, of course, uh, have a lot of things to talk about. I would uh, definitely start off with my pet question that I've been doing for every episode is like, um, what does a day in your life look like? And then mostly in context of work. And I've gotten very different answers, so I'd love to... Uh, yeah, firstly, again, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Hearing Dr. Kailashnath is a little awkward. You could just call that's, me K. I know, I, so. I, I won't do that anymore, but <laughs> yeah. that's like, I've seen like Nitin post like Dr. K every time, and I really like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's my nickname. So, uh, how a day looks, it has changed drastically over the last few years, and there, there have been distinct faces. But what has been constant here and maybe a little peculiar in our industry is the regulatory weight. And you wake up, you have certain plans for the day. It could be writing software, it could be you know certain meetings, team meeting to figure out technical, non-technical decisions. Suddenly there could be this regulatory thunderbolt <laughs> that completely changes uh, your day and the subsequent 30 days where you have to pause absolutely everything. Yeah. So that's really a reality of life. And over the last couple of years, there have been crazy number of regulatory changes in the industry, all for the better, but really difficult ones. So days are really unpredictable. You know, you get on with a certain project that you've been working on and suddenly you have to pause, suspend absolutely everything and firefight uh, for the next several days. So there's been a lot of that lately. Right, right. And and on a more personal note, like apart from like everything that's happening in Zero and everything, do you get time on a regular basis to sort of tinker around with things? I've seen, of course, a lot of your open source projects. Like, does that happen in pockets of time? Do you try to schedule some time for that? Uh, scheduling is impossible, but I find uh, I try to find time regularly, uh, late evenings, largely. And mostly, you know, full weekends. So I dedicate a lot of time. I, I, I feel if I don't do that, I'll start maybe getting bored of things in general. So for me, finding time for hobby is, is a necessity. And of course, I you know enjoy it. It's a win-win. <laughs> right, but right. yes, very regularly. Right. Uh, another question around that, because uh, very interesting. I've heard a lot of uh, answers from uh, quite a few folks uh, is about like when you are managing a team and you know uh, been doing it for a while uh, sort of the importance of uh, writing code and I've got fairly different answers from people as well yeah. so what is it for you like you know how much is it just hobby how much is it do you think you really need to do that to stay abreast of things staying abreast of things as a specific goal is something that I don't really think about because I write code on a regular basis anyway right. so I never had to I was I've never been at, at a point where I think back and think that, oh, I'm maybe losing touch. But that said, that's absolutely necessary. Uh, Unfortunately, we get to see, especially in our industry, you know, heavily regulated capital markets industry, lots of people who've completely lost touch with technology in general, making very technical decisions and often wrong ones. So I think that is very necessary. But because uh, I regularly write software, just like, you know, all of us in our tech team, it hasn't really been a thought. And why do I write it? I mean, I like it. Uh, if of course. if I couldn't write software, I wouldn't be, you know, doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Um, so I have a, a question around because we are saying about like 
regulatory uh, uh, you know nightmares that happen and i think it's fairly discussed in terms of like uh, say a business impact or like sometimes whole fintech companies pivoting because of that yeah yeah i would obviously want to you know use this opportunity to also delve a little bit into how does it impact uh, like a tech team working on something for example i mean i'm a regular user of zerota that's my trading platform and uh, i think you have to directly pay for mutual funds now i think a couple of months back yeah, 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 came yeah, yeah, to yeah. sort of change because i would just load yeah, my funds yeah. in one place stocks and mfs in the same place yeah now i have to do that upi thing yeah um, so when something like that just suddenly drops yeah right and i guess you don't really get a lot of forewarning or something around stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah, usually yeah, right yeah, yeah. so when something like that drops like uh, from a tech perspective like what are your usually next steps like maybe well oiled machine everything is going on and suddenly you have to <laughs> uh, cater to this so thankfully i think one of the things that we cracked early on as a team was handling scenarios like this if we didn't have a very specific and rather sane framework for handling these regulatory scenarios i think we would have found it extremely hard to cope with like the huge number of changes right. uh, that we've seen over the last many years and uh, if a tech team is constantly pressurized and burdened with making regulatory changes scrapping systems you've built just because regulations change yeah. if you don't truly internalize and accept that that is the reality of life in the industry it's very difficult to survive hmm. so thankfully very very early on like almost a decade ago we kind of realized this and how we build software you know architectural decisions software decisions business slash product feature decisions all of that is heavily based on this regulatory framework right. so one of the exercises that we do is to try and foresee what could you know common sense uh, changes you know that oh it works a certain way but there's a high probability that 3 years from now you know it might change because of regulations right. so that foresight uh, as an exercise we try to incorporate into all our software decisions even things that even writing modules for certain software you kind of you know expect that ah this might have to be scrapped got it so when you do that uh, and all your decision making in any business idea any product any you know software architecture when it all incorporates these tiny little things these this form of decision making over time it kind of puts you in a place where things aren't as hard Yes you still have to scrap systems but you force all that anyway and if Got you it. get 80% of that right right i mean of course it's super annoying having to delete everything stop everything but it's not impossible we could have been once you get to a certain scale and you know risk increases it would have been extremely risky to just scrap things if things were not built to be scrapped okay. so everyone in the team you know of course we joke about it we meme about it it's a really hard reality of our lives but you know we have gotten used to it we expect crazy regulatory changes at any given moment and thankfully our systems and processes are 80% always ready to be tweaked and scrapped so we cope with it but it's been a uh, it's been a long exercise of, of thinking like that you know long time in the making and we got really lucky that we wired ourselves to uh, accept that <laughs> <laughs> makes sense uh, i i have a uh, you know uh, a question about also sort of the product uh, philosophy uh, yeah. uh, especially in zero that's context and i uh, thought of if i ever get somebody to talk to at zero then ask about this because uh, uh, for example uh, every day like there are hours during the night when some of the functionality in uh, on the app and all yeah. stop right <laughs> and it's it's a philosophical decision i believe because there somebody can build a product not having those things in place 
like how did it come to be i just really want to have a you know broader perspective around how did it come to be like why do you have a maintenance time every day as a ux it does not affect me i'm very yeah, fine yeah, because yeah. 2 am at night i'm not trading stocks yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does happen so how did it come to be like that it's not a philosophical decision you know we are forced to have uh, maintenance windows not just us it's basically the norm in the industry okay and uh, back in the day it would be like a 7 hour you know uh, downtime where all systems go down and you know lots of stuff happens right. but today we've brought it down to let's say an hour an hour and a half hmm. so why it happens is that this industry is uh, eod end of the day end of the day yeah. it's settlements that, and all correct yeah. so this entire industry base, uh, runs on end of the day settlements all the real time trades that you do investments that you do throughout the day yeah. they are real time that them being real time is kind of an illusion yeah. the actual settlement only happens at the end of the day right. so for us if we process let's say 10 10 15 million orders in a day we get 15 million orders worth of data dumps from the exchange on on a volatile day that can be delayed so you get uh, data from many different sources you know like dozens of massive dumps at the end of the day right. you have to crunch everything you have to do settlements you have to reconfigure users accounts you know balances etc you have to send copies of the results to many different institutions exchanges depositories etc so that these are really long and complex processes right there could be you could have six data dumps that you were waiting for but the seventh one could be randomly 2 hours late right so when these processes are happening and these are really uh, complex processes and we've put in humongous amounts of work to you know bring them down for from 20 hours to 8 hours to 4 hours to let's say 20 minutes just last week we rewrote our entire contract note you get that pdf at the end of the day process right yeah 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 so that had over time this is the, i think the fifth rewrite in the last 7 years okay so with this new rewrite everything is done in 20 minutes including you know pushing out let's say a million emails yeah but while these things are happening the state that you see on your trading platform that's already stale but once the new states are computed new balances new positions new results new everything they have to be loaded into all these systems now just processing itself could involve let's say you know uh, recomputing 100 billion rows of financial records you know historical prices yeah 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 so all of this has to happen and the new states have to be loaded onto the trading platform so we've made it so that while all of these things are happening you can still access everything but the loading process the sheer volume and size of data that has to be refreshed the new states that takes some time right and like i said we brought that window down to let's say an hour hmm. and it's it's an unfortunate it's an unfortunate side effect of the nature of end of, end of the day settlements and if you haven't put in huge amounts of engineering effort it'll be hours and hours and you'd right. be down for let's say 8 hours throughout the night Maybe. but yeah it's not a philosophical decision we are forced to forced by yeah, the yeah, kind yeah. of uh, yeah. situation and and it's an ongoing exercise to bring that window you know uh, down as much as possible continuously got it got it got it uh, makes a lot of sense now <laughs> uh, so uh, hearing about of course like uh, the process that goes behind like you're saying you know millions of trades happening every day yeah. you know and reconciling all of that data uh, and then uh, this is obviously a question about Uh, like how are you achieving all of this with a small team and it's a question that keeps coming in a lot of places i've seen i've seen i think once you replied on a reddit thread about that yeah we are really just 30 people yeah uh, i i have known a few of people in your team from some time back so i really know that it is 30 people <laughs> for the audience <laughs> you know you're not faking it but uh, i mean 
it's it's uh, very uh, common for a lot of people in the industry to early stage career places they have worked they have probably seen uh, like pretty big tech teams yeah. and and maybe the uh, you know the perspective that it gives a lot of people is that okay uh, moving around this amount of data millions of users is probably just not something we can even achieve with less than 300 engineers or something hmm. uh, right uh, so love to uh, you know uh, get uh, you know your perspectives around like of course at zero the house it being achieved with so uh, less people and i love that you had a point there that this should be the norm for a lot of industries as well yeah. um, so yeah how is it possible where are the places where it can be possible it's firstly it's very difficult to answer uh, so the question typically comes top down how can you do all of this with let's say 30 people yes but we never set out to do any of this with any number of people we started out really small and things just happened to be so it's very important to go uh, from the bottom up when looking at this exactly so that that you know so there's no formula for replicating tomorrow let's say you want to build a product like zeroda but maybe that something that only happens one uh, one tenth of the scale now could you do that with five people or 10 people or 50 people it's impossible to say or no Makes so sense. it's literally a function of the time that we've put in and how the team has come to be now uh, as i said earlier everyone in the team has a certain way of thinking you know that regulatory framework the framework of risk that we operate in we really understand right now if you were constantly burnt out by that and if you were unable to collaborate a 30 member team could never build any of this so the key is that we gel really well with each other you know we know how to have fun we know how to you know uh, work around our mistakes and laugh about our mistakes and also laugh at our successes so i think the way the team has evolved over the last 9 plus years uh, to this tight knit gang plays probably the most important role uh, in this outcome how how a 30 member team can build stuff Uh, right. or you know large scale stuff they have to work really really well with each other i say that because that comes before technical skills now of course you need talent and technical skills and expertise to build you know systems you have to say then write software right but if you had a bunch of people who were exceptionally technically skilled but who couldn't work with each other especially in a in an environment like this heavily regulated you know the team would fall apart fall apart in no time right and so that really is key how we stuck to our principles how we've been grounded since day 1 the when we had 5000 users let's say in 2013 <laughs> yeah. to today you know 10 plus million users we are our, our attitudes have not changed you know we stick together we collaborate well we write software scrap software rewrite software for the sixth time we have fun so, and uh, that also means that the decisions are objective and technical mm. uh, the moment you have let's say tech versus management divide yeah i think it's impossible i mean it doesn't matter if you have 30 people 40 people 100 people i mean it would be very very difficult right for people to stick together they have to be in an environment that they are comfortable in especially you know technical folks who are creative and writing software is not only scientific it's also a creative endeavor so again uh, you'd see that there's no formula here it's really about people yeah, and how yeah. people work with each other and thankfully again from the very very beginning at zeroda we we haven't had the technical versus management divide as in you know you suddenly get email requirements from the management uh, no questions asked and you're supposed to build it you never be able to build quality software uh, with 
so solid philosophies and rationale if that's how it functioned where someone sent you a requirement you had no idea why and you were forced to do it right. so from the very beginning we we've been conscious of that and that uh, tech how the tech team works with non tech teams it's been philosophical and it's been very collaborative everyone sits down together so anyone could uh, bring up an idea propose an idea people can shoot it down people are free to shoot ideas down in fact probably 95% of all ideas that we proposed have been shot down objectively hmm. and uh, tech and non tech teams they they know uh, you know we have the right culture where people respect such objective decisions right so that also has meant that people with deep financial domain knowledge uh, mostly non tech folks now today tech folks also understand lots of you know uh, bits financial bits but in the early days it was all the domain knowledge were with the finance folks finance right? but because we were able to work hand in hand it was possible to bring that deep financial knowledge and create and the creative endeavor of endeavor of writing software for finance together people sat together all of us have always sat together on the same floor you know, just walk up have a discussion decision you know debate decide right so it's it's really that it's really that culture that has enabled us to build whatever we built with just 30 people and it just happened to be and of course skills and the right kind of technical decisions are absolutely necessary wrong decisions could be disastrous <laughs> so of course there's there's that too we put in humongous amounts of engineering effort and r&d effort right. but going back to that number how can such a small team achieve something like this absolutely how the team works with each other it's the culture and philosophies makes sense yeah. uh so i, I mean uh, and this is a i think a discussion around like what sort of the team size you need to achieve something and i've had with other folks as well in the past and and i remember actually early days when i used to run a startup and uh, we had like three full time engineers and a couple of interns and uh, there was a time i had come to a conference in bangalore and there were some other edtech founders and we were talking about and then they said like you know what kind of numbers and all you're doing and i said that okay you know maybe 1 or 2 million uh, a year we are doing in revenues yeah. we have some you know probably free users we have about uh, you know half a million of them some 10 20000 paid users yeah. they like at this scale how are you running with four engineers <laughs> and uh, i think yeah, i mean i i just uh, asked him the counter question is like you know okay he he was doing probably in revenues a little less and like okay fine that's uh, regardless of that but your systems look very similar to me yeah, yeah. there's some video being played there's some notes people are writing some questions being solved mcqs and also educational system very similar yeah uh, you do have like 30 people in the team like why do you have that i mean that's also a yeah. question because uh, i did not form a team thinking it will be four people i never needed more than that yeah. and he was saying uh, we we uh, had this idea then we raised some funding then we thought okay to build this we will need 30 people so i think the uh, thinking comes from okay to build these 10 things we will need 30 people yeah. that's the reason he had 30 people rather than uh, probably starting to build it and see where it goes yeah, yeah. maybe that does play a bit of a uh, i think uh, because there are enough examples of uh, things built at a very big scale both in terms of features that are there yeah. users that are there yeah. and he had a team of maybe 10 people 20 people i mean whatsapp was very famous for that when they got acquired they had yeah, some maybe yeah. 19 people or so and people thought that 1 billion people working on that app how is it possible that's right uh, but i really like that piece of the answer which is like you have to sit down with the i mean tech non tech rather than talking about it in those terms like yeah. have somebody with domain expertise and 
understand what they want, solve that problem together. Yep. Um, and it it still is like that. You're saying uh, absolutely nothing has absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, we still debate ideas. Sometimes debates go on for days, right. and ideas are always shot down. Anybody's free to propose an idea. So you, know, you have to, if you feel that any idea that you raise will be immediately shot down by the management, mm-hmm. I don't think you'll be at your creative best in such an environment. Right. So it's it's ingrained in the culture that anybody can propose any anything, anybody can question anything, and the outcomes have to be objective. You know, right. we can we could have a really tight decision, but you know, you write down bullet points on the left left side and right side and whatever weighs slightly more that's the objective decision and that has in hindsight worked really well for us and to go back to uh, the anecdote you just shared I, I really don't know how that works I don't know how it's possible to reduce humans uh, humans who are especially creative let's say software developers or you know product folks how you can reduce them to units and say that this particular piece of software requires uh, six human units or 30 <laughs> human units. I, I, I really don't understand how that works. And I've never seen that example play out really well, that approach, sorry, play out really well anywhere. So when, when and I think there's a huge, there's this huge component of FOMO there. Uh, you, let's say you have a product that is becoming bigger, growing, and you receive funding and you have three engineers. I mean, people will ask, Questions, how can you build, you know, whatever you're planning yes, to build with yes. three engineers. So you start doubting yourself. And I've seen this quite a bit, even in really young startups who are just maybe a year or two uh, too old. They look at the peers and suddenly, you know, that other organization has 50 people. So we have to hire, we need product managers, we need more developers, we need more dedicated designers. Right. So a lot of external factors influence decision making and how to build tech teams and you end up with massive teams where everyone's a little lost. Yeah, there's a little bit of manufactured complexity also in your systems because Conway's not getting into effect there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you have, let's say, 50 people, they have to do something, right? <laughs> so you automatically, implicitly, and subconsciously start creating, you know, complicating your architecture, complicating your design to give everyone enough work. Hmm. So it's a vicious cycle and it just keeps on getting worse. Right. The more complex it becomes, the more people you need. The, and beyond a certain number of uh, people, you have to now have other people who manage communication and results and all. And suddenly you get really rigid hierarchies yeah. and you keep on growing. So once you grow, you have to keep on growing. So and and I'm, as I said, I've never seen a successful example of someone saying this particular piece of software needs X human units and it working out exactly like <laughs> that. You can't you can't. It's like you said, it's possible for 20 people to build a WhatsApp uh, that can handle billions of users, it's possible for 2,000 people to build terrible, let's say, you know, net banking applications yeah. that don't work. Right, so, right. yeah. Um, uh, on that piece, uh, because you talked about that uh, tech and business thing, and then um, Jacob was here on one of the episodes of Scale Pod, and he was talking about uh, an anecdote where um, the VCs had an interview with the CEO and the CTO. And then they were like very impressed that, you know, how, how did both of you have the same answers as to what you want to do in the next five years? And then and, and Jacob uh, say this uh, part, which I had it in the teaser of that episode as well, that I absolutely, completely, totally hate the word, the business. I mean, the tech is the business. You're building yeah, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, tech correct. and business are not separate things. Yeah. Um, uh, but but that's it. Uh, the, the This divide, whether it's in minds of people or it's actually there, it does exist in a lot of uh, places, right? Um, and then our audience being like the, you know, the engineers and the tech people, 
so my question is uh, like as an engineer and you're growing you know started building things you know hacking around maybe you have joined a company you're working on things uh, how do you also sort of gather more perspective about the business how do you not think of okay this is what i was told to build i don't know what how it is going to be used and that kind of sometimes mindset can percolate if you are in a environment where you have a tech versus business thing yeah uh, but i think part of the onus is also with the engineers too Uh, because it's a bridge and everybody has to come to the middle yeah. uh, so at a more philosophical level when somebody is growing as an engineer how do you go about making sure that you go at least to the center of the bridge for the tech versus business uh, divide so i think uh, i think it's difficult honestly for young engineers uh, folks who are just starting out it's very difficult because their world view hasn't formed they don't know that they have an opinion and in many organizations <laughs> engineers unfortunately have no voice or opinion mm. and even in you know tech companies right so i think the burden the weight really lies with the management uh, mm. in culture in an organization you know it has to come from top down right and no matter how hard engineers try engineers cannot really create an engineering culture if the management isn't uh, up for it if they are not in right. on it so if to have to cross a bridge there has to be a bridge yeah. and it's very difficult in an organization that doesn't really have the right culture of collaboration between tech and non-tech folks it's very difficult to build that bridge you you have entire managerial frameworks you know this whole requirements thing where requirements come in you're supposed to build it financial let's say in a financial company financial decisions are made by someone sitting somewhere there's no rationale you get a thing saying oh add this button add this report prd <laughs> yeah yeah and and you're supposed to just do it yeah. and you're supposed to report to, to your manager now if there's no culture that has been established by the management themselves it's impossible for engineers to even attempt to cross the bridge because that bridge has to be built and sustained by the management if the management is open i mean people will immediately people who are willing to contribute will naturally immediately figure out that oh it is possible to have a dialogue right and it's just that and in most in many organizations unfortunately where there's this tech versus non tech divide there's no dialogue Hmm. you get you know you get requirements you build you don't even know why you're building it could be wrong it could it could uh, weigh negatively on the software architecture but why would a non manage non tech management care about software architecture right so it it has to be top down it has to be the culture has to be established by the management makes sense uh here and, and i will play a bit of a devil's advocate here and it's it's probably the question is not coming from a perspective that is uh, personal but yeah. uh, uh say speaking on behalf of uh, let's say a non tech and a you know business oriented founder let's say yeah um and then uh, we talked about it when we met at force india as well yeah, so yeah. it's it's uh, why should we invest in an engineering first culture let's just say uh, somebody says that okay i have a bunch of requirements if the tech team just builds it i will go ahead and keep building my team ahead and you know yeah. uh, i don't need an engineering culture to exist in my team yeah. uh, and fortunately unfortunately wherever you put it but i have seen this uh, sort of dialogue also from people right yeah. Yeah. Uh, right and then i think that the result of that is like a lot of times people uh, very passionate and very uh, highly motivated engineers get into a company which like from the outside looks like doing great business but they are like you know we just left a year later because we did not feel like having a good engineering culture yeah um, so i mean before coming to i think the engineering culture and hacker and open space i will talk about that as well but yeah. what's the uh, you know need even for building an engineering culture uh, you would say i think you touched upon it uh, 
a little while ago where you know this whole tech versus non tech thing i think that line is now blurring mm. so if you remember there used to be tech enabled businesses <laughs> yeah. that used to be a thing correct but today everyone is kind of a tech business even companies that run on excel sheets you know are kind of digital tech businesses correct. and we have this entire category of terms like food tech i know travel tech you know yeah, fintech yeah. uh, whatever these were all uh, tech enabled businesses where business was finance like zeroda for example you know zeroda's primary business is financial services right so uh, maybe 8 9 years ago zeroda would be looked upon as a as an organization that offers some technology as a means merely as a means to provide financial services right but today it's completely changed you know people see zeroda as a technology provider not just a financial services provider right. so zeroda has turned into an engineering tech company right and so it it's it's a way of looking at that if you consider that your business just needs tech as one of the small little uh, pieces uh, to run the business of many other pieces then it's very difficult to have an uh, engineering culture right. there are if an organization if a certain business relies heavily on technology and even if it's let's say financial services or food services or agriculture or whatever Uh, but if engineering and technology are a core proposition of the business and that requires self awareness you can always compartmentalize saying oh there's this tech team they'll build whatever we want but our business is finance my it team exactly my <laughs> it team so but we are financial folks we'll only do finance and you know tech is just a means hmm. so if you look at the business from that perspective sorry as as i mentioned it's very difficult to establish an engineering culture because it's just one of the necessary evils right but as i said the lines have blurred you know zeroda has become a technology company from a pure financial company so zeroda offers technology plus financial services now and that is that has that transformation has played a key role in zeroda and maybe reinventing or reestablishing itself as a different kind of a player over the last you know let's say half decade now if that wasn't the case maybe zeroda would be an entirely different kind of company which offered some financial services but you know there wasn't uh, i know scale or growth or whatever in in uh, in in today's terms so what is the necessity here if a certain business uh, if technology and engineering is core to a certain business and realizing that it is or whether it is or whether it is not it's really the first big leap makes sense so if it is core you need to have uh, that that becomes the core proposition of your business going forward that defines yeah. your future and it becomes imperative to have a good technology team and what exactly is a good technology team team with people who are happy doing what they're doing <laughs> and i mean content not super happy maybe but you know people uh, who don't hate what they're doing correct correct right. and 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 again technology as it grows as complexity grows you can't just have you know you can't just get two developers in get them to fix certain things build new things you know mm-hmm. chuck them out get two people it's an ongoing like a very long term endeavor right the developers who build software that software enters their mind space and it lives in their heads yeah. and any knob that you need to tweak the correct way you know quickly fix a certain thing or quickly scrap a certain thing build new features it's all in their heads yeah it's it's just like a completely imagined spaceship kind of thing you have in your head uh, you know the live parts it is some sort of a diagram in your head not sometimes not even easy to visualize but absolutely it's, it's so it's not like a commodity where let's say you have a mixer grinder that breaks down you can take it to any mechanic and because it's a commodity it's so simple it's trivial they can all fix it 
Yeah. But complex software, it needs people who built that software with deep understanding of its nuances and the million decisions that have been taken over the years to operate it. Right. Now, all of that, those things lives in the uh, minds of you know, engineers and product folks. And if their minds are not happy and they're churning, you know, your engineering team is constantly losing people, new people coming out, of course, that is going to reflect immediately, physically and heavily negatively on your software. You'll have poorly built software. You'll end up with legacy software. Nobody can rewrite legacy software overnight. And all the people who liked it, built it, they've gone yeah. because you don't really have an engineering <laughs> culture. So from a uh, maybe a transactional perspective, I'm not a fan of this perspective, but from a purely transactional perspective, uh, selfish perspective for a business, if a business is going to rely on tech, if tech, is, tech and engineering are going to be core to it, and if they don't cultivate an engineering uh, culture, I mean, it's going to be disastrous for them. We can... Yeah. We can just we just have to look around us. Massive organizations with unlimited resources, legacy organizations who produce terrible software, who are struggling today. Right. And the finance industry, you know, has so many great <laughs> examples, right? It's all because of that. They refused to accept that technology was core to them. They, you know, they ended up keeping it as just one of those things that has to be serviced. And there's no tech talent. Why would people want to work in why would Creative people who like creative endeavors want to work in an environment where there's no creativity is just a means to, you know, delivering certain kinds of business. Right, right. So absolutely imperative for businesses uh, to do this if they really want to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's been free to another question, of course, because we were talking about engineering culture. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, what, in your opinion, is a good engineering culture also I'd love to, love to ask. Uh, because, like, if you walk into a tech team and, like, what do you expect to see which would make you say that, okay, this team has great engineering culture? And I say that from perspective of, let's say, somebody wants to join some company. How do they decide whether this place has great engineering culture or not? Uh, that's also a tricky one. Culture is very subjective. What culturally works for, let's say, a Zeroda may not work for a different environment. Fair enough. So it's highly subjective. Right. And that really is the very definition of culture, right? It's an amalgamation of things that change, things that have been accumulated, with things which are appropriate for a certain environment. Right. So as I said, our culture heavily is built around understanding and accepting the risk in the business. Mm. Uh, in a non-risky environment, the culture will, would be completely different. Mm. But there are certain principles that are common. Firstly... People have to be chill with each other, irrespective of, you know, people have to have, uh, people have to be able to make fun of each other without right. reservations. Uh, people, you know, nobody, nothing is sarcosanct. Right. We have, in our team, we have memes about everyone. There are new memes that are made every day. I think there are like six or seven different smileys in very non-flattering poses of my face. And each smiley, you know, denotes a different kind of, you know, Expression, situation. Yeah. yeah. So there's all of that. And that's just a tiny part of uh, the overall facet, which is, you know, people have to be able to gel well with each other. Yeah. That's one thing. And secondly, what I would definitely weigh, uh, sorry, give heavy weightage to is how people operate, how systems are designed, whether they are from first principles or not. Hmm. So that is also a part of culture, that thinking that, oh, we need to build a certain thing. It needs to be able to handle, let's say, a million users, whatever in that, you know, context. Uh, let's go serverless or let's pick this cloud. <laughs> that, that's, that is, that's very top-down thinking. Yeah. So it has to be first principles. You know, what are these million users? Do they even need this certain feature? So should we even bother building it? So it has to always start from, 
from the absolute bottom from complete from first principles hmm. so how a team makes engineering decisions architectural decisions that are going to be with them for the next decade you know that will define their very survival that comes from first principles thinking and teams that get together and collaborate on first principles tend to i think tend again tend to gel well with each other because you know there's no reservations you're free to sh- shoot down things objectively saying oh no that's not a good idea because you know abcd is wrong that's only possible when the thinking is from first principle from when the you know yeah. when it bottom it's bottoms up so it's really that the people should be able to gel well with each other and technical business and engineering decisions within that team should be objective and should be from first principles i think these are kind of two hallmarks of good engineering culture and of course lots of things change it's subjective but these are you know largely universal i think makes sense i think i definitely relate to that point about breaking down the barriers in the memes and all because i have uh, at one point of time worked in a much larger company with a hierarchical setup and there were people in my team much older than me so uh, to even write a code review and saying that something objectively i just have it's the review on the code not on the person right yeah, i still yeah, have to yeah. cc the manager because okay that person might get offended and then obviously it's not it's not a great environment to be able to uh, discuss the you know technical merits of something if if those barriers exist in the first place yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure uh, about the uh, you know uh, other part as well uh, right um, first principles thinking now um, for for uh, and i will actually of course like you said serverless there are very concrete examples of using say uh, you know no sql dbs and a very interesting blog article that you had written about how uh, you have been scaling postgres at uh, there right uh, and again i i see because teaching so i see a lot of people uh, uh, youngsters and maybe a little bit of disadvantage being mongodb is a company uh, right and then not to throw shade on them i mean there's definitely good use cases of that uh but but of course if it gets marketed a lot versus something like you know using uh, mysql or postgres there's nobody to market that it's an open source project hmm. uh sorrently people develop a habit of say building a lot of projects and of course if a particular tool has way too many libraries available easy to quickly use people can sort of get into it uh and maybe maybe that's also a great way to start that's fine uh but as you grow as an engineer how do you uh, sort of keep yourself grounded to the first principles uh, if you could have a word of advice around that i think it's about self awareness and awareness in general yeah. so somebody who starts out young and let's say their foundation are no no sql dbs hmm. like you said nothing wrong with them they have their use cases hmm. and they've never been able to work with relational databases how do you even know what you don't know now yeah. that's a big trap how correct, do you know correct. that you may be wrong so it's very difficult and if you fall into that trap of you know let's say always buying into hype you wouldn't even know that you know you're wrong maybe right so it's it's very important to have hands on experience on a wide variety of engineering you know topics and aspects there's literally no other way if you've never built a no uh, an a relational a system that uses relational database you wouldn't even know you can't even make the decision so it's very important to work on as many hands on projects as possible but how do you know that you have to work on maybe somebody has to i know tell yeah. maybe somebody has to mentor or guide but that starting point just that just growing that awareness that's it once you have that awareness then like a billion resources are on the internet you can learn whatever you want you can build whatever you want but it's just that starting point people have to know that what we know uh, may not there 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 are 
huge number of things outside of what we know what a narrow focus all the time just that realization and self awareness uh, that that's what's most critical right and that's the starting point so yeah i don't really have any solutions on how <laughs> someone can gain that but like i said maybe maybe it's accidental mm. uh maybe it's just you know people feel that or maybe they need some hand holding got it got it uh around that i think uh, and then uh, we talked about like uh, what are the uh, things we would uh, want to talk about here and you said about like you know building projects versus uh, products kind of thing and then i really uh, you know what what uh, youngsters say vibed with that <laughs> because uh, uh, when i uh, teach some classes and you know after teachings let's say concepts of okay how to build an api how to build a, you know orm and all of that so okay now go ahead and build a project yeah and one of the largest feedbacks i think probably 70% of people come back and say i spent a couple of days could not come up with an idea yeah. uh, to build something yeah and and, and it, it sometimes feels very uh, disappointing like hey you know you don't really have to come up with an idea that's unique enough or not like how about just build a blogging app or something like that build a calculator maybe but, but yeah. just go ahead and build yeah right uh, i mean you have also obviously seen a lot of engineers grow via this you know uh, tinkering culture yeah, and yeah, yeah. you yourself call yourself a tinkerist so uh, how much this is important and you know why is it important for people to develop this you would say i think it's paramount it's probably one of the most critical things required to be a good engineer and and to be able to learn uh, what we were just discussing prior if you don't know what you don't know how do you even uh, get started yeah. and building things hands on breaking things getting experience realizing that oh i can do this or i can't do this it, it's a it's a it, it's the single biggest step unless you write software hands on you can't learn you know you can read resources watch podcasts and videos for forever for years you'll never be able to produce you know decent software hmm. but if you start writing software and produce bad software and improve it and the very act of writing software and producing bad software you're automatically improving yeah. you know that tiny badness you can you know you'll fix it and you would have learned something mm-hmm. so nothing absolutely nothing beats that and all engineers in the world who are good they're all self taught so so it's basically it's basically that the act of writing software hands on is the single biggest requirement to mm-hmm. being uh, to being a good engineer right 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 yeah uh, i would like to take an example there i mean uh, and i just uh, recently checked out when you had published dns.toys oh, yeah. uh, and and uh, i was having a, a discussion with my uh, friend saman and he's uh, he's a engineer at a big tech company and he was like i just loved it because i opened the github repository and i look at the code and i see okay no 20 different classes or something it's just you know whatever we need to get it done yeah. the the code inside each function looks very clear and concise but everything is in one single file that's fine I, i'd like to you know probably like go a little uh, deeper into like how did that idea come to your mind like why playing around with the dns protocol to like give answers like time zones and everything so that the answer to that also answers your previous question like you said sometimes students come up and say i i don't know what to build yeah. that's actually a very legitimate problem hmm. it's like a writer's block uh, you can't come up with unique ideas every day yes. and sometimes you look for many many years to you really have the drive to build something but you don't know what to build right. and you can't bring yourself to building let's say you know trivial things you want something new or unique hmm. but if you look at uh, most hobby projects out there most fast they've all largely they're all largely born out of real world problems that people faced or frustration like most of my uh, open source projects that i have published 
I've stumbled upon them not because I was looking for certain ideas. I had a certain problem. I encountered a problem. I built software to solve that problem. Then I realized, oh, this can be extended and given out to others. Mm. You pick any large or small open source software out there. It's largely, it largely, the genesis would have been basically that, you know, people facing a certain problem right. and then trying to solve that. So, yes, to experiment, I'm sorry, I'm still trying, uh, try answering your previous question. <laughs> sure. Uh, that, that, that urge to tinker has to be there. But if you go looking for ideas, it's, you know, you're probably setting yourself up for disappointment. But when you come across a problem, you have to jump on it and, you know, write some software, you know, tinker. Yeah. So, DNS Toys is an ex is a great example uh, for that i had no i had no vision to write any <laughs> you know dns related things but uh, i found I, I find myself entering random queries into google every day you know unit conversions or whatever uh -huh. and over a period of time i've seen that from simple you know expression matching you know 10 gb to 5 mb yeah, yeah, yeah it's a simple you know string passing thing i don't know google's overly sophisticated technology and maybe machine learning models, you know, you don't, it's very, sometimes it's difficult to get answers to those straightforward questions also. You get absurd answers, you know, it, it just goes as a query and the, you know, result doesn't show up. Yeah, yeah. Spe specifically with unit conversion or, you know, simple one-line queries to which you really quickly need answers. And, you know, I'd been getting annoyed and I'd been <laughs> getting frustrated. And that typically is inspiration to, you know, tinker and write something on your own. Right. So for unit conversions, you know, I could just... Uh, write a simple bash script for myself. Yeah. But, you know, that wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> so th then I figured maybe, you know, it, it could be a service online where I can just quickly get an answer to some of these commonly uh, common queries that I raise every day on the terminal. Now that could be, you know, an HTTP service you could query it with curl. But curl, it just didn't, you know, just seemed a little inadequate. <laughs> and then I randomly had the had this thought. I don't know what had primed me to DNS. I mean, DIG is everywhere. Dig. DNS is a protocol. It's a super, super simple protocol. It's universal. It's ancient. It's raw. It's so beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. send a query, you get an answer, UDP, and it's just so good. Yeah. Then I thought, you know, why can't I abuse that? It's, it's <laughs> rawer. It's, you know, more first principles than, let's say, curl. HTTP is a, you know, yeah. a more complex protocol compared to DNS. So I thought, you know, someone would have done it. Someone would have abused DNS. Of course, people abuse DNS for everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I saw that nobody had abused DNS to get queries to answers. And it makes perfect sense. You send a DNS query. The yeah. whole system is around the concepts of sending a question and, and getting answers. An answer back, right? So like, why not, you know, add this unit conversion thing to that? Then I was like, oh, I also, you know, tend to check weather every day. You know, Bangalore temperature, Bangalore weather. We all of us Google that. And, you know, why not add a weather service? Then I thought, oh, there are these other things. Sometimes, you know, you get a really big number, uh, let's say 10 or 11 digit number. And, you know, I find it hard to mentally pass. You know, I have to count decimals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I Google, you know, numbers to English words or whatever, land on some random website, paste that. So that's also a query that I frequently need answered. So why not add that? So I added a bunch of things and suddenly I had a DNS server that could answer some of these queries. And it was universal like you know it's just that it's purity the protocol's purity was very attractive yeah so i made it you know i then of course if you're typing it every day it has to have a really short domain name if i have dns answers and questions.com ah. <laughs> that'd be that defies the point so i looked for a domain and found dns.toys 
So I can just say bangalore.weather, digbangalore.weather at DNS Toys and I get the answer. Yeah, yeah. And that really satisfied, you know, uh, that urge. It scratched my itch. Yeah. Of course, I, I, I turned it into a website, published the repository and, you know, it became an open source project. Right, right, right. But that's really the genesis of many, you know, hobby projects. That itch, that one problem that you want solved, it's, it bugs you, annoys you, that itch you want scratched. And just because, you know, you're an engineer, you know, when you can do DNS, why do HTTP? Yeah, yeah. So all of those things put together, you know, hobby project is born. Right, right, right. Actually, that reminds me of something very similar I had done. And this story feels so familiar because, uh, uh, so I, uh, it was, uh, you know, just before the pandemic time. And I was doing a few consulting with some people who were outside India, like different places. Yeah. And, you know. We'll meet at 1 p.m. Okay, who's 1 p.m.? Your 1 p.m., one, my 1 p.m., all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I used to, you know, uh, start figuring out that uh, also um, the calendar software everybody uses does not necessarily always match. Like Google is still probably 90%, but somebody using Outlook. So you make an event in Outlook, send it to Google. Sometimes the because of DST and everything, something happens. Uh, and, and I had gone to a hackathon we had sponsored. Um, and I was there just mentoring some people that then... At night, there was nothing to do. And uh, at that time, I was learning Vue as a front-end framework. And uh, it just uh, clicked my mind that, hey, just using the routing, uh, the you know hash parameters and everything. Uh, so I found this uh, domain name available, sharetime.in. Hmm. Send me the sharetime.in uh, slash IST slash 1700 if you write. And you can share this URL to anybody. If they open it in their own time zone, it just picks the time zone from the computer and says IST 5 p.m. is... 10 a.m. at your time zone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice. So it's like the URL is very easy to share because share yeah, time yeah. in, yeah. tell the time zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think the beauty is that it was ridiculously simple what I thought that I want. Yeah. But to implement it, I figured that uh, when I was using some time passing libraries, uh, so I figured that these three letter time zones that we use, like IST and all, yeah. um, that's not the IATA standard. The IATA standard is something like Asia slash Kolkata, yeah. like that. Yeah. And and the rabbit hole kept digging. Like I figured out, okay, KST is three things: Kaliningrad yeah. standard time, Korea standard time. Yeah. So I figured that sometimes three letters need disambiguation. Yeah. So then I have to add a disambiguation layer in the yeah. middle. Yeah. Like okay, build that. Uh, then I figured that um, Chrome has a bug that uh, they have not updated Asia slash Calcutta to Asia slash Kolkata yet. I went and uh, write a bug on Chrome's bug tracker and I found out that there is a thread going on for the last five years. Yeah. And somebody's like, hey, IIT has updated it. When will you guys do it? And like Firefox has done it, Safari has done it, but Chrome is not. Yeah. And uh, then I found out some uh, message from some cryptographic, uh, cryptocurrency exchange. Somebody wrote that our trades are failing because Asia yeah. slash Calcutta and Asia, Kolkata and the browser is happening. Yeah. So I figured, hey, it was very simple. Like I just thought that I would build it in five hours or something. And from there, got to learn so many things. Yeah. Uh, as a result of that. So I think uh, even for example, something like DNS.toys, if somebody wants to just clone it and run it on their own, they will learn so much about how to run a DNS server as well yeah. in that process. Yeah. Uh, so no, that's that's a great example of rabbit holes. So you wanted, you try to scratch that itch of just doing one date conversion. Yeah. But if you hadn't bothered, you wouldn't have learned so many things. But because you bothered to do it hands-on, you were driven, you learned so many things. 
Yeah. This is what engineers need to do. You know, they need to build things with their bare hands. You know, they have to do, you know, even the tiniest of projects. Right. But nothing is really tiny in that sense. You know, date parsing is a really complex thing. Yeah. And you went down the <laughs> rabbit hole. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it was, I think, uh, like the end of the journey, it was just so fulfilling for me itself is, uh, and then I sent it to a bunch of friends. So nowadays, like when somebody asks me from Singapore or Dubai or somebody like yeah. went to meet and I just type them share time dot in IST and like, nice. so, so they read it in that time zone. Yeah. And then somebody suggested that if I open it from a time zone, can I get a thumbnail preview in WhatsApp itself so that I don't have to open? Oh. I'm like, oh, okay. See, that's great. <laughs> I'll build that yeah, next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea, right? Yeah. So you can just send the URL. The OG tags will work and you yeah, don't even yeah. actually have to open the URL then. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in piggybacking on all of these different technologies. and That's a brilliant hack. You should do it if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, I mean, whenever the next weekend I get some time, that's the next thing on my agenda yeah, uh, to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I hope like uh, if, if people are hearing, I mean, they, they, you know, whatever the itches they have been having so far, they, they do scratch some of them and, you know, build some of those projects. Yep. It'd be really uh, beneficial. Uh, but I will take a segue from there too, actually, because you talk about building these things and also open sourcing them. And this is the reason why I have discovered so many of your projects because they're open source. Uh, and then of course, first of all, thanks to you because you share those uh, instead of just incurring and keeping them. Um, now, open source is something, of course, um, you know, sort of a bit, uh, I would say, abused, misused word also in some places yeah. uh, gets used sometimes as developer relations and branding agendas yeah. also some places. Yeah. Uh, for me, going up open source was, um, I figured out how to hack uh, the kernel of a, uh, you know, uh, basically reload the kernel of a Android phone. Yeah. So then I figured out, okay, Linux kernel is GPL, so I can download, change uh, stuff. And I figured out, okay, phones come with uh, processors with uh, speed limited. You can actually bump them up and you can overclock a phone as well. Yeah. Uh, and then overclocking desktops or something, people yeah. knew, okay, phones can be overclocked. Yeah. And then stuff like that I did. And then I figured, ki, um, in fact, I opened my first GitHub repository because of that reason. I figured, okay, if it's a GPL code, if you make a modification, it was supposed to publish it. Yeah. This the spirit of that word is yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, got very uh, invigorated by that. Hey, that's that's a nice spirit that this entire community has. You make changes, yep. publish it back. Yep. And of course, since then, uh, I've contributed to a lot of open source projects and everything. Um, but but from also an org perspective, because uh, there was this force pledge at uh, Force United, you were talking to about uh, orgs as well. Um, if I talk to individual engineers. Uh, a lot of them really appreciate if their org uh, actually uh, supports uh, open source development or supports their engineers to contribute to open source. And I feel that for a lot of engineers, it's a very big motivating factor. Yeah. Uh, what do you have to say to orgs or to engineering leaders as well? Like, you know, why should somebody, you know, focus on this? Hmm. And like you said, sometimes it's very transactional, selfish reasons also exist probably. But, yeah. you know, uh, how important is it uh, both for, you know, individuals or also for orgs? Um, I think it's very important hmm. uh, and a part of, we spoke about building engineering culture exactly. and the necessity, right? Huh. And I think this is one of the facets of building a solid engineering culture. Right. And when I say engineering culture, I also mean hacker culture. Hmm. So if people aren't in on consuming open source software and everybody builds everything on, you know, FOSS today. Yeah. And if they're not keen on tinkering and, you know, publishing stuff back, uh, that the engineering culture kind of takes a small setback there. So a solid engineering culture, it's about collaboration and you have to collaborate internally with tech teams and non-tech teams, but it's also about collaborating with others outside. 
And for what? I don't really have, you know, a quantifiable answer. Like you said, for some organizations, it could be transactional. It could be marketing. It could be a way to attract people hmm. to, to hire them, which is fair. I mean, all of those things exist in the world. They can all coexist. But uh, some organizations do it just for the heck of it, just for the spirit. So there's no right or wrong here. I mean, I prefer a certain perspective, but <laughs> many organizations do it for selfish reasons. Like, like I said, it's fair. Hmm. But it it is it's important because it enables all of these things right. it lets it makes engineers better engineers also because when you write something for yourself how you write that how you think how you architect software it's very different from when you have to build something for others when you write software for other parties and open source software millions of people could use it people you've never seen people in completely different geographies, different cultures, different perspectives, different requirements. They will take your software and use it in ways that you never ever imagined. Exactly. So when you write something uh, for others, for unknown users, it's a whole different framework. You're writing it with as many holes closed as possible, as many edge cases addressed as possible, yes, yes, as yes. clean an architecture as possible. And that just makes you a better engineer anyway. And you'll start applying those principles in your internal projects also, thinking that, you know, I'm not writing this for myself for today, I'm writing it for whoever it could be tomorrow. So there are many benefits to that. And, you know, building a culture, uh, you know, transactional, selfish reasons, uh, just being, practicing, being able to write better software by writing it for others. And of course, giving, you consume all this open source, giving back. And when people derive utility from the software that you publish, it's immense amounts of goodwill as well that may not translate to money but you know it, it's if you care about it it's a lot of satisfaction right so many of these reasons like a number of reasons why it should be done right 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 um i think i feel it's a little unfortunate in india it it, it happens way less i feel because uh yeah uh i mean maybe i mean zero that definitely does razor pay i have seen uh flipkart uh there was a time i used to follow there's a lot of great stuff they used to open source um, but it's not something very, very prevalent versus I know a lot of my friends who have probably, you know, moved uh, out of India and in US and all. a lot of times they end up picking up a job because they, they found some open source uh, project which they needed for some of their own use. They found out oh, this is made by this org and they're like, I would love to work at a place which has made something like this. Yeah. Uh, so this is something that I would, I think definitely should uh, improve <laughs> in our uh, tech culture here in India, I guess. Absolutely. It is so disproportionate, it's actually shocking. Mm. We have, I don't know, dozens, I don't know, hundred, you know, unicorns, <laughs> massive tech companies, unlimited resources, tech companies that build, you know, cutting edge technology. Most of them are in Bangalore. <laughs> but if you look at the number of open source projects that come out of India, it is so disproportionately small, it's yes. practically non-existent compared to this massive you know wave of digitization at every level at the governmental level at the governmental level at the industry level young companies old companies cutting-edge startups startups that are expanding all across the world all of these things have come out of india but the same industry which uses open source software to build all of this build all the valuations build all their products produces so little to the point that it's non-existent I think it's a cultural issue. It goes back to exactly what we, we've been discussing. If you have a tech versus management divide, if you have a management that isn't keen on engineering culture, there'll be no encouragement to get people to you know, open source things. Mm. And if you pick 
I know dozens of really big, popular, large tech startups here. And if you look at the management, I think it'd be a sad realization that many of them are not really engineers. Although these are all tech companies, they're all led by people who don't really care about engineering. Hey. If you don't care about engineering, why would you care about encouraging your developers or tech teams to produce software to give out to others? What do you gain from that, right? Hey, Nothing. Hey. So it's it's a very it's a sad cultural issue, uh, and. Again, uh, before the before this started, we had a brief chat about FOSS events in Bangalore. Like how early 2000s saw a large number of you know thriving open source communities all across India. There was a OpenStreetMap movement Top was big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Wikipedia movement was big. You know, lots of students got participated and entered FOSS via Wikipedia. Yeah, there were lots of FOSS events. You know, hacker events. But over the last 10 years, now India has become this uh, techno innovation business hub. But FOSS-related events have kind of almost vanished. Mm. All the communities, they've vanished. And many of these events today happen on, under very corporate umbrellas. There are tech events, not exactly open source events or you know, communities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Today, when we have unlimited resources, when the private tech industry has unlimited resources to conduct and encourage such events and groups yeah. and organizations, we don't really see anything. So I think it's all very cultural. From engineering slash hacking slash tech, We've gone to like a techno business realm altogether, which is fair, hmm. but you need to have both. Yeah, 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 so of course. Maybe it'll come back around. We'll yeah. see. Uh, even even in a techno business realm, I mean, it's it's fairly common to hear, probably from my perspective, because, you know, there are people hiring engineers from Scalar. So we get to hear from exactly the people who are hiring. Yeah. We're getting very difficult to hire uh, good engineers. So yeah, it's a yeah. term I keep seeing yeah, being thrown yeah, around. Yeah. Uh, but I figure that, yeah, I mean, if you don't create the atmosphere where whatever is your definition of a good engineer thrives, yeah. <laughs> then, then you will have this complaint for sure, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's the ethical responsibility of tech companies who benefit from all open source software and tech and yes. uh, good engineers who've come out from, you know, these ecosystems to contribute back and help produce a thriving engineering culture everywhere. Right, right, right. Um, uh, also, uh, uh, from a, you know, uh, and this is maybe a, you know, imagine a question coming from somebody fairly young, in like early 20s or something getting into tech. And I keep getting this question myself and then I try to answer the best I can, but love to uh, get an answer from you for those people as well. Um, there are people who have maybe just heard about a little bit. Okay. You know, there's this guy, very good engineer. He started his career with open source, stuff like that. People hear such stories. And then people ask like, okay, how do I get into open source? And then obviously that's a very vague mm. question in that sense. Yeah. But nevertheless, like you said, there's a big chasm of not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. If somebody's even interested up to that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I figured, heard from some people that it's great to participate in some open source communities or contribute to some open source projects or build some of my own projects. I heard from somewhere. Could be good for me. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes just at that point, there's a question like, how do I go about doing it? Mm. Uh, what would be your answer to somebody very young, just getting started? What should be their motivations? And then, you know, uh, probably I would not ask what should be their motivations. I think the motivation is fairly there. They, they want to get into it. They just want to know how they should go about doing it. Uh, this is a question that I see very frequently. Yes. Uh, I want to get into open source. How do I? Yes. I think... It's, it's difficult to be very honest. If you want to start contributing to large existing projects, you need a certain level of expertise and understanding. And you know, deep understanding. Some of are very overwhelming. Absolutely, absolutely. And for projects that are run, for large projects uh, maintained by you know, skilled teams of people, 
why would they accept contributions which are not meaningful yeah, yeah so yeah. this whole question of how do i contribute an existing project is a slightly problematic one true especially for beginners true true so to get started with open source you have to start get started with hacking and engineering you have to become a software developer first you don't have to have you know 10 years of industry experience but you have to have hands on experience of having built something right so before you get into open source get into engineering you have to write software you know write a date time calculator or you know play around with the dns server build something yeah and when that happens the doorways automatically open up for instance like uh, that example with your toy project was great you just wanted date time conversion but that you picked a date library you went into the into a rabbit hole of yeah. issues maybe one of those issues that you found in a, a date library you'd know how to fix and you could send a fix there yeah but if you start out by saying i want to contribute open source where do i start nothing will happen you can never start exactly so you have to start by becoming a software engineer you know build your own projects hands on projects and uh, in that process you'll start using other software libraries and what not and that will open up pathways right so that is i think the only way to really do meaningful open source contributions it won't it can it has to come to you when you're working on those things hands on building your own projects or building stuff at work or whatever but if you just wait they're saying how do i get started i need to get started nothing will happen so you have to get started by writing software makes sense that that that's uh, definitely a great place now now uh, i'll uh, probably uh, go deeper into uh, that particular rabbit hole of you know uh, how to i mean get started to open source too then uh, there is an extra of questions which come from people about also uh, how to go about their engineering careers hmm. and and uh, i mean we we discussed it back when we met like you know about that sadly sometimes a lot of it is fomo driven maybe the fomo can give you a good place to start but if that's what keeps on driving you yeah. might not end up in the correct direction uh, and all yeah. uh, i would like to also uh, probably predicate that with one background and i remember a long time back i saw an interview uh, with uh, linus torvalds and he was saying that um, and there was a lot of outrage in india about that interview because he just said something which people perceived to be anti india but uh, he said that you know uh, what i see is i don't see somebody from india uh, creating uh, something like linux kernel and the interviewer pressed on like why hmm. and he said that you know when i was starting with you know minix and you know uh, hacking around with bsd and i created the linux kernel uh, i was not thinking like uh, how i will get a job next i had just you know i was in finland i had completed my yeah, university yeah. degree and i did not need a job right now yeah. uh, the i think the finnish government pays uh, some yeah. uh, bursary amount for a couple of years till you figure out a job and you can so it's like i was just hacking around you know there were some old uh, you know solaris boxes lying somewhere plugging some hard disks and seeing if i can write a better driver for that yeah. and all of this stuff i was doing and then out of that linux got born and i was not i did not set out to build something like yeah. linux out there and then he talked about how like i was not finding a good version control system so i wrote git and all of that <laughs> like uh, like i have come to india a bunch of times and i have met you know indian engineers and somebody right out of college is thinking so hard about uh, jobs and yeah. that's a background that we should also keep in mind i believe Absolutely. like because yeah. we are not a very rich country we are a poor country and a lot of people have a lot of responsibilities probably education loans when they're getting out of it yeah. uh, despite given that background how do you say people should go about like like, like the early phases of their careers what kind of things they should you know learn and what uh, can be good motivations to sort of keep learning more things see it's very difficult to talk about motivation i mean it has to come from within and correct correct when it comes why it comes when the spark happens to 
be a hacker or you know do things for the joy of it it's very difficult hmm. and like you rightly said we can't compare our economic conditions especially over the last few decades yeah. with say our western counterparts there when you have great social security it's it's possible to think like a hacker you know i'm not <laughs> going to think about a career i'm not going to think yeah. about a job i'll sure. just hack around because you have great social security but again like you rightly said we don't really have that sort of social security here people have big economic uh, obligations right and to meet those obligations you have to find a job right after college you are mostly forced to find a job yes uh, so it becomes really difficult uh, unfortunately because of that the ecosystem the environment here isn't really ripe for hacking and once you and, and we've talked about culture or the lack of you know a lack there of engineering culture in our industry even the new age tech industry which is flush with cash even that lacks it now when you when a young student uh, who has economic obligations to meet enters the industry and if it's a large big it industry you know it's a uh, they get churned there they there's no churned. engineering it's yeah. just services uh, it, it's drone work unfortunately <laughs> or if let's say they enter this new tech industry which has all the resources uh, you know well paid jobs and all of that but there's no engineering culture too chaotic there i guess yeah. exactly i mean if without that culture right what sparks this whole idea of motivation there has to be something right it has to be people around you it has to be the environment you are in uh, it could be the it could be a community it could be a conversation that you have right. about hacking with someone it could be anything that sparks and the spark has to sustain now the probability of that spark occurring is low because you know because of whatever reasons we don't really have that engineering slash hacker culture not in the old industry ironically not in the new industry and not really in our educational establishments most of them as well again for whatever reasons you know large sections of educational establishments are wired geared towards produ producing graduates who get into this you know this churn yeah i mean there are strong socio political cultural reasons for that economic okay. reasons for that we can't really blame anyone but that's the reality right so when you come out when you go into any of these paths when you take any of these paths the probability of you getting started you getting that motivation you getting that spark to do something try something have fun is low yeah. it happens but it is really low hmm. so it, it's a problem it's something i think about all the time yeah, yeah. when people especially say our colleges don't uh, produce you know fast hackers why is that so many you know millions of people who finish engineering degrees but how many open source projects come out of india right so these are all really complex reasons and uh, it's bit, it's a bit of a loose loose where you know <laughs> sadly uh, yeah. in in all these areas and yeah. paths so it's just really hard right. now how do you get motivation i don't really have an answer i think it has to that spark has to come from somewhere so the people who have the ability to let's say set up ecosystems or help create environments that flourish yeah. uh, like strong engineering cultures people who have the resources to do that i think it's their ethical responsibility like i said right you know many of these big startups that we have who are flush with cash who use tons of open source software what they could do to give back to society and this is not about producing projects for github correct the second third nth order effects of this engineering culture could be huge for a country like india right if we had more and more people creating software public goods for other people to use just because they like using it it's it's extremely valuable for you know humanity in general right yeah 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 but you can't tell anyone to be motivated or to create software it has right. to come from within so what we can do 
is people with access to resources, whatever, it, we have to consider it an ethical responsibility and create environments like that. Right. So I, I, I didn't answer your question, but I don't really have an answer. Right, right. These are the, my, these are my I think thoughts. maybe I, I'd probably use this opportunity to also uh, probably uh, push a very personal pain point, especially with uh, like at scale or exactly uh, the stuff that I have personally faced is, uh, and then again, this is probably like a bit of a complaint against, I would say, uh, tech companies who also say that it's difficult to hire. Uh, we have often gone to uh, tech companies who are interested in hiring people. And I would say that, okay, see, uh, sometimes obviously like very big companies, uh, they have a certain process. It's a pipeline kind of a thing. Yeah. Solve some lead code problems, system design, interview and go. Yeah. But there are people where, you know, it's, it's a smaller company, it's a, you know, very product focused engineers, the CTO open to talk. Yeah. And we have sat down and they said that we want exactly somebody like this, somebody, let's say, who understands operational logistics, who can, you know, build an end-to-end project in, let's say, Node.js. They have a very specific idea of what they're looking for in mind rather than a broad brush good engineer. Yeah. And even despite that, uh, what I have faced a lot is that I say that, okay, if you have a very specific requirement like this in mind, how about I suggest you something that, uh, you know, you uh, spend a little bit of engineering hours with us to help us build a project. And, and we roll out the project and some of the learners at Scalar, they will build it. And yeah. your engineers can spend maybe a couple of hours a week just, uh, you know, code review what they have done, yeah. mentor with that project. And you do it for a month. Some of the people you, whom, you know, you really love who have built that project, you can hire them. Yeah. You can't get a better signal than that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to be doing most of the heavy lifting for you. Right. I, I am really interested in, you know, letting some of my students build some projects. And even they would be very invigorated because it's like a big unicorn company and their engineer is mentoring you in a project. Yeah. And even there, then the pushback is like, okay, we don't, uh, we won't have time to spend on this or maybe, you know, uh, we don't have the bandwidth to do something like this. Yeah. And there I feel, I mean, that's probably the point where I would say that that's my complaint here is that, you know, if, if you have a very specific kind of engineer you're looking to hire, uh, and you want all of the signals and I'm creating you a canvas where you can actually get those signals from people. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sad if you don't want to even spend that amount of time. Yeah. And this is not like, you know, publish an open source project with license and, and everything. I mean, even maybe this is even less effort than that. I'm just saying, you know, a couple of your senior engineers spend two weeks, three, three hours a week, right? Yeah, yeah. And then mentor a project, right? Um, and, and I personally have seen that work so well. So uh, when I was at uh, Zomato and I think... Uh, the two of the best hires in my team I did was via something we call trial week, where somebody would come in a week work with us. Hmm. Uh, right. Only thing is it's a little discriminatory to people who can't take out such a time. Maybe hmm. they're working yeah. somewhere and they can't come and spend a week. So fairly junior people you can hire like that. Yeah. You're hiring somebody senior who has a family, who are established in a certain city. You can't say that, you know, you just leave your job and one week come and hack with us. Yeah, and then yeah. we will hire you. Uh, but the two people I hired, they were the strongest hires in the team. For sure, because you have worked with them for a week. I mean, yeah. it's obviously better than take an interview. Yeah. But I think, yeah, if companies do actually put out that effort, yeah. it it's really compounds a lot back uh, to them. Uh, and then with, like you're saying, the resources that they have, it's just, uh, you know, probably like a sincere appeal that they do that. Because uh, I also have anecdotes like when I um, uh, ran my first uh, company as a startup and we used to do everything open source. Uh, as telling you that time, like we did not think that we were a startup because we were just teaching people. Then edtech as a word was not so common back yeah, then. Yeah. And um, and it was my I did not believe that the software we were writing was anything unique. I mean, just 
playing video writing some commands it's it's very run of the mill uh, right um, of the shelf type of software but of the shelf did not work there were some lms systems that did not work so we thought okay we'll write our own uh, software for that but that okay let's make it open source one of the best uh, outcomes of that was um, people who joined our tech team were all people who were students in that place uh, they figured that the tools that we're using to learn not adequate i will add some code and i'm like hey why don't you come on board and join us yeah. uh, there was this whole entire online id like complete something like a vs code kind of an environment and that was entirely written by uh, people who are not employees of the company it's just people figure that okay i can tinker with it and then you know i can add to that uh, so i think that that value sometimes uh, also that message is also with the leaders is also they don't see it because I've uh, worked with some European companies where I see that they very much understand that second, third, fourth order effects also, yeah. and they have seen those benefits. Yep. Um, but maybe I don't know. We as a ecosystem have not yet seen those fruits of the second, third order, and that could be a reason. Absolutely. I mean, see, it's a lot of forces really altruism, right? Some of the <laughs> most valuable projects in the world that all of us, you know, billions of people use. are made by a handful of people who make it because they like making it they struggle yeah. to make a living with you know with a difficult job and at the same time they contribute their personal time and effort yeah. into a force project that they give out to the entire world for free and if you look at the large for, larger force ecosystem most projects would be like that why do people do it right it's of course you you did for fun you do it for satisfaction but you know there's also this aspect of maybe it's a very touchy word altruism so It, i think like like the examples you mentioned right they're great so companies want to hire the best engineers uh, they want to use the best open source projects available from across the world to build their companies right why can't they give back how can it just be always consumption we'll pick up the best software we'll hire the best engineers we will you know do ridiculous we'll throw out ridiculous offers to attract the best talent right but where does this best talent come from you can't become a great engineer by you know reading books or watching videos you have to have you have to you have to be involved in all of these things you have to work on lots of projects you have to collaborate with others you have to be familiar with force projects you have to produce force projects for this you know whatever we've been discussing you need a thriving ecosystem here of engineering culture of appreciation for engineering yes yes so you can't expect to fi- uh, find uh, great engineers all the time in unlimited supply if you don't contribute back whatever it is yeah. to create an ecosystem that produces such engineers right right so it, it's very it's very short sighted and blind of organizations here to just expect to be able to always find great engineers while never doing anything to produce great engineers right and why do you produce great engineers it's just it's you know it's like i said it's also an it's ethical responsibility even if you can't foresee the outcome we publish this open source project or let's say we run this community event or do whatever we fund some open source projects what do we get back maybe nothing but at some point all of these things you know these all of these things have to happen on a large scale for good outcomes to happen for everyone but if you transactionally look for very specific outcomes i sponsor this conference i want this back Mm. that doesn't scale that doesn't scale. and then you can't you know complain that there are no great engineers here because nobody is doing anything to produce great engineers and how right. do you produce great engineers all of these things without looking for specific outcomes yeah 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 i have uh, like a handful of friends from my college days who have fairly probably i would say burnt themselves out of the india ecosystem at this uh, 
point because of this because these were uh, people whom with whom I would go like almost one or two hackathons every month they would love doing stuff like that you know working on open source project participate in google summer of code uh, and i had a group of some 10 15 people and a lot of those people are now at a point where uh, you know there like, there isn't an you know indian tech startup which is even pitching that hey come here because we hack on cool stuff yeah and nobody's even doing that pitch and i want that pitch and a lot of those people have eventually moved out uh, especially they find some places especially you know uh, amsterdam france those kind of places there are a lot of companies who are actually literally pitching that yeah. you know like uh, forget how many users we have or you know how many requests per second we process all of that just come because we build cool stuff we go to hackathons we participate in conferences we build open source projects and then you know come because of that yeah. it's a very direct pitch and uh, i think people should actually look up on that and see that it's a pitch that actually works with a lot of engineers who really want actually that out of the work they just want to have fun yeah <laughs> want to yeah. hack on stuff and you're probably missing out on great engineers are looking for that if you know uh, you don't create an environment where you'd let them do uh, that in the first place and then of course there are the second third order effects yeah. uh, around that as well um i did uh, like to take a segue into uh, something else uh, which is uh, we were earlier talking about you know as like the tech versus business thing you were saying that um, the the tech uh, is the product and it's a, from going from tech enabled to actually being tech products happening across a lot of uh, yeah. these verticals uh, what sort of the i mean going ahead looking at the industry probably wider industry but also finance uh, something that you have been doing for so many years that uh, what does like sort of more emerging pieces of tech look like because i have obviously read that uh, nitin had shared about ai and finance <laughs> thing but but nevertheless uh, i don't like you know there are a lot of new things uh, coming up uh, i mean ai blockchain all of that but apart from the hype words uh, what sort of the future of tech in this domain looks like going ahead uh difficult to answer yeah. uh, but i think you know big revolutions happening in ai ai many different kinds of ml and ai technologies becoming commoditized etc will accelerate better technology for sure but ai won't just come and change finance right or you know suddenly there's this thing called blockchain and it'll completely revolutionize a certain thing it doesn't work like that these are all building blocks exactly somebody has to come take the right building blocks find the right problems to solve and use these building blocks meaningfully to solve these things if you look at let's say the let's say kite our investment platform you look at kite in 2022 and you look at uh, trading platforms that were available on the desktop they weren't really mobile platforms or forget mobile app our web app versus web apps that were available 10 years ago uh, i mean fundamentally nothing really has changed fundamentally <laughs> as in you log in you see stuff you press a button you know uh, it's all on a web page you can place orders uh, etc but these systems are light years uh, apart yeah and lots of like a million subtle things have changed it's still a web app it uses javascript it was a web app it you know used to use javascript what has changed is sensibilities have changed right uh, the you know these not just us you know many newer companies care about user experience and just by focusing on good user experience we've see you know we've had a large number of products uh, emerge high quality project, products that you can't even compare with what existed 10 years ago but technologically they may be the same thing 
maybe it's just you know slightly better web frameworks slightly better mobile frameworks so i think changes drastic changes is going to come like this lots of little pieces coming together to give produce better and better quality software right. i don't think there'll be anything let's say in finance tomorrow that will completely change how people you know interact with finance like a mic drop kind of a thing exactly i don't that think that happens yeah, in tech that doesn't that doesn't that is that's very rare that happens yeah. very rarely and if you again if you look at how people treat investing online today you know there are 18 year olds signing up versus how it happened 10 years ago only 60 plus people of yeah. the 50s and 60s stated it's completely changed yeah but did that happen overnight no it happened over a decade maybe yeah. accelerated over the last 4 or 5 years so any sort of change is going to be like that maybe people will start using machine learning technologies to solve very specific problems right. and there'll be a big ux boost then someone will come build on top of that right. so 5 years from now when we look back maybe things will look drastically different right. but i don't think there'll be one discerning point where one technology comes in revolutionizes everything let's say in finance yeah and specifically with finance at the end of the day it's about money if it's about people making money losing money software technology ux etc secondary an ugly app that makes people money people will use that uh, you know rather than a beautiful app that loses them money correct so at the end of the day with finance specifically it's basically that all these incremental things help people you know imp- improve on certain things but nothing major yeah. but If you look at certain other industries for example uh, things like uh, GPT-3 etc right yeah. the possibilities are very exciting and maybe they some of these technologies will completely disrupt how people produce art you know there are all these you know stable diffusion there was an open yeah, source yeah. release uh, just 2 days ago now people can run uh, stable diffusion on a commodity gpu and produce insane art Correct. programmatically Correct. sorry with a simple english prompt yeah. now that could completely redefine how stock images work Yeah, I mean, so, designing YouTube thumbnails, for example, is something that you know, if you're doing it remotely with the designer, yeah, and yeah. you have a vision in your mind, and you just try to communicate that to yeah, the designer, yeah, and then yeah. they come back with it, and those iterations. Sometimes, I feel like even if it does not replace the entire cycle, I can just put a prompt into something like Dali or Stable Diffusion. Yeah, yeah. Get a rough image and send that to the designer that you know I want something like this. Absolutely. Changes the game completely. Completely, and uh, millions of blogs will. suddenly have you know very contextual great looking images yeah, right so once in a while technologies like that come along and disrupt things overnight right. but that is very rare if you look at the last 10 years you can think of two or three of these technologies that completely changed the game practically overnight for certain for a lot of industries but you can't aim for those because exactly, they are exactly. black swan event kind of things <laughs> exactly so drastic overnight changes happen very rarely but mega changes over a few years and decades happen all the time but you can't pinpoint when that happened it's you know it's really complex right 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 uh, i did have a few questions about uh, and i just remembered that uh, is about uh, some of the folks uh, who got to know that you would be coming uh, about uh, you know uh, zero dust tech stack as well by the way yeah. and and that's something a lot of people were interested in knowing uh, so i'd start from of course uh, the first is something which is more closer to me is like i have been a mobile engineer for a long long time uh i mean zerodha was probably the first one to take a bet on uh, flutter yeah. uh, it wasn't so popular back then it was yeah. uh, very alpha beta level uh, yeah. so what what uh, made you do that and then versus i think you had a react native app also long long back uh, yeah. originally uh, so how was that played out and i would say probably zooming out like you were saying first principle level thinking yeah. so what are the you know probably ingredients that went into taking a decision like that and how is that played out 
Yeah, it was a big decision. It was a hugely risky decision. And Flutter was pre-alpha. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think anybody was using Flutter for anything except for uh, the Flutter team's own demo apps. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. was nothing else. And uh, Ajin from the tech team uh, has written a great blog post describing this entire journey. Yes, yes, I read it, yeah. On why we made that decision. So just to quickly summarize the gist of it, uh, we had a native Android app, uh, our trading platform, and for iOS, it was written in React Native. Right. And of course, it, maintaining two different code bases for two different platforms is a huge pain. Right. And uh, this was a time when we were making a lot of changes, you know, not just regulatory changes, we were evolving as a product. So right. things had to be, new things had to be built constantly. And building two things in two different ways in two stacks and two code bases and releasing them at the same time, of course, it's problematic. Correct. So it was very clear to us that we wanted a unified platform where at least 80-90% effort would be the same. And React Native was something that we bet on, but it flopped. It, was, it wasn't mature. This was back in 2017-18. Right. It wasn't mature enough. We had way too many difficulties. There were performance issues and we stumbled upon Flutter, which looked very promising. Right. Its architecture was promising. Uh, it's uh, the language of choice, Dart, which was a new invention. That had you know certain benefits. Uh, the way it was architected looked promising. Yeah, like drawing the pixels directly is... Correct. I have always loved that because, you know, you take the Unity and all game engine philosophy yeah, yeah, yeah. to an app. Yeah. Like we, because uh, when you think of cross-platform, then the biggest problem is like how Android draws things and how iOS draws things is different. Yeah. If you keep fighting it, like React Native is actually fighting it. Yeah. yeah. You will keep on fighting it and, and the platforms will keep on innovating and you will have to keep on fighting it. Yep. Uh, versus if you really want true cross-platform, I think just circumventing that and just draw the pixels directly to the screen. Yeah. Uh, it does come at a little bit of, I think, graphic rendering cost for sure versus like native Android. Uh, but I really like that philosophy uh, when it originally came out. Yeah. Like, and I think for mobile, it was workable because... Mobile applications did tend to look very different. Yeah. The problem with cross-platform UI, GUI libraries is that they are impossibly hard to pull off, which is why even today we don't really have great cross-platform UI frameworks for Windows, uh, Linux, yeah, exactly. and Mac. Uh, you have to keep finding fighting OS APIs. It's extremely difficult to unify. Yeah. And the thing about direct painting uh, is that for operating system apps, you know, they use OS widgets. Lots of elements, right? Yeah. And if you don't nail that pixel by pixel, it feels like an alien app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On mobile phones, people are used to, you know, seeing different yeah, kinds exactly. of UI. So it was possible to get away with that here. But the same attempt on desktop is really problematic. Hmm. So an app that looks like a Windows app on a Mac will completely throw people off. Correct. So that's the downside of painting. You have to reinvent, you know, native look and feel yeah. and controls and nuances from scratch, which is... An impossible project when it comes to desktop systems. Desktops. But for mobile, yes, absolutely. Like you said, uh, it allowed Flutter to bypass, you know, uh, all these quirks. Yeah. So we were uh, greatly smitten by Flutter as a technical framework. We liked how it was architected. But now the decision, just because something looks great te technically doesn't mean, you know, you can bet your entire future on it. <laughs> there are many other considerations. We didn't know Dart. So there were many objective decisions that went into it. Is, it, is Dart viable? Can we learn Dart? Is it possible? So we answered that question by experimenting. We built a prototype in like two weeks of what we wanted to do. Right. List views with, you know, real-time market ticks were a problem. You know, it has to render at 60 FPS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we built a, you know, 50, 100 item list view in uh, Flutter. So we saw that the list view had a bunch of issues, but 
you know, it was open source. We were confident that we could fix it. While right. Flutter was evolving as an alpha pro program, these big issues that it had at that point, we, with actual, with a hands-on experience of two weeks and technical dissection and uh, looking at how it was built architecture, we built confidence enough to realize that, oh, these issues, you know, let them be there. We can work around them. Right. Then the final question is, can you bet your technology on this? Uh, how can you, what are the factors that would allow you to bet your future on this technology? What if, you know, Google kills the project? Uh, what if there's no community around it? What if people don't li write libraries for it? So that was a very difficult but objective decision again for us where we realized that the pain that we were fa facing with native a native code base plus React Native was far greater than, let's say, Google killing off this in three years. We figured if we could just port this and run it for three, four years, because yeah. it was open source by patching it ourselves, maintaining it ourselves, and all the bells and whistles it had suited our requirement, it would still be worth it. Right. So that trade-off, you know, despite all these issues, despite all these risks, it would still be worth it. That's the most critical, pivotal decision point. Yeah. And we're like, fine, let Flutter be killed if it's getting killed. We would, it would still be worth it for three, four years. Right. So to arrive at that decision, of course, we had to make, you know, actual hands-on. We had to build a prototype. I mean, we couldn't just look at the GitHub issue and decide. So it was a very careful, objective, technical, first principles decision-making process that started out as a very technical thing that went on to a, a tangent of business and organization, like the risk. Right. And we made the decision and it turned out to be a great decision. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, that, that's uh, fair enough. And uh, I think I have seen uh, places where, like you're saying, if Google abandons it uh, kind of a thing. So uh, at Target, uh, there used to be a library that we were using for uh, 3D rendering some models uh, so that you can virtually try out some products that you want to buy and stuff like that. Uh, and it had two versions, I think. One where uh, you would actually use direct 3D models. Another one was where you could just sketch it out in a, some pseudocode kind of language and some 3D models. Yeah. Uh, Google sub stopped supporting, like they abandoned the, the sketch uh, thing. And then Target started maintaining it because it was very important for yeah. us to actually use it. Yeah. And uh, the decision to actually buy into that was right from day one that if Google does not actually maintain it, we can do it because yeah. we understand the system, how it works and it's important for us. And there isn't any better solution for us right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, See, that, that's a great trade-off. You even have to visualize the worst case outcome when picking on picking a technology. Yeah. And once you, are, once you know that objectively we can handle the worst case uh, outcome if it were to come then you're kind of safe and 90% of such decisions don't turn out to be don't turn out to be disastrous yeah, yeah. yeah. the worst case like you have cover for that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes sense uh, so coming from that uh, mobile architecture to also um, to to uh, you know web systems and the back end uh, and then I've heard uh, from folks in your team as well some friends who I have is you know it's fairly simplistic uh, compared to what I see today uh, is especially when I'm teaching is that a lot of people like uh, once uh, they they get started with actually building things, there's a lot of questions around. Okay, what you're teaching me? Will you teach me how to build in microservices, or you know, <laughs> uh, will you teach me how to deploy a serverless to the cloud or something like that? And uh, you know, while occasionally it can be exasperating because I'm like, let's start building something. We will figure out. We can separate it into services. We can you know serverless or you know VPS. How we will deploy it? Let's let's see. We yeah. will go there. Uh, but I think the um, hype of a lot of those terms have permeated. Uh, and and 
you know if it was only hype it was one thing but uh, there are people who are actually building stuff which is getting influenced by that hype yeah. today it's something i feel i recently wrote a very long twitter thread about like probably very contrary and unpopular twitter opinions but there are a lot of uh, folks like uh, amod and then ajay they, they retweeted they say that you know uh, <laughs> these are probably good points uh, it's it's sad that it's unpopular uh, but then i would like to delve a little bit into how's your tech stack look like and you know how do you go about doing deployments um i see it's very unconventional that you roll a lot of things in house versus using a lot of uh, cloud based services um so if you could run me through a little bit of that uh so the tech stack has evolved greatly over the last you know decade and but not really in principle in the physical manifestations we've changed databases we've changed you know programming languages but the, the f- approach has always been first principle so when we really started out we didn't really have a road map uh, when we started out almost a decade back we didn't have a road road map to build a trading platform we wanted to build technology to solve problems inside uh, zeroda first so in the very beginning it was python scripts that cut down let's say one hour of manual csv processing to let's say 2 seconds right. and it was mind blowing for the people there right and uh, so th- that's that's really the origin the right tool to solve a physical problem the right job that's that's how we started out we didn't say we need full stack we need a train platform we need ui is nothing right. so these then we started you know solving slightly bigger problems back then it was just me when we started zeroda tech it was just me and i was sitting there i'd go sit with non tech folks find the problems you know write python scripts to automate and at some point you know i had too many you know people got the taste of automation <laughs> it wasn't even tech it was automation and they're yeah. like oh can you automate this can you automate that and that's how we were slowly very slowly trying uh, becoming a you know a digital business from pure uh, offline paper stuff to you know slightly more digital from a brokerage firm to a trading platform that <laughs> exactly that that transition was slow and very organic yeah. uh, support system was a single gmail inbox that you know let's say 20 people logged into that obviously doesn't work then we brought in i installed os tickets a, an open source you know ticketing system ticketing. so all these tiny pieces at some point i realized i was getting way too many things that i could handle it's time to build a tech team so after several months after starting zeroda technology as an organization with a roadmap to you know build technology in finance we hired our first engineer <laughs> so only when i exhausted you know my capacity then the two of us started do- doing whatever i was doing and at some point we were like oh we need more hands then the third person then the fourth person so the team grew very very organically and as did the stack right so the in the very beginning as i said it was python because you know i was uh, okay writing python i could write decent python and it was python automation stuff then we started to store database sorry we had to store transactional data at some point suddenly there was postgres because you know i had always known postgres i had worked with postgres certain things for whatever reason had to be mysql databases i knew that also so we use that os tickets for example uses mysql yeah and os tickets is a php uh, system yeah all so, those old software yeah yeah wordpress era software <laughs> exactly wordpress era and that required some uh, tweaking so suddenly php was also a small part of the stack so we picked the right tools for the right job for overstick for support ticketing it was this it was appropriate for something else it was that it was appropriate at some point after lots of digitization after lots of you know back end dashboards and what not with let's say django because we are already using python uh, 
at some point we suddenly had an end user product on our roadmap so that was built in python uh, we used redis for caching because everyone was using redis for caching it was memcached or redis at that point yeah, yeah. and redis was slowly picking up uh-huh. uh, uh, sorry gaining popularity, popularity so we built a django based uh, system i think there was also this library framework called cherry pie which was simpler than django okay but it was a python stack so our apps grew features grew complexities grew issues grew databases uh, grew data size grew lots of end of the day number crunching that was based on proprietary really bad windows software which was norm in the industry we started rewriting in python in house so suddenly the this data backend python based stack happened but python redis and uh, postgres were really the you know big pieces and 2017 is when by then we had uh, then of course the mobile app happened yeah uh, right after we built kite the web app at some point this was also you know random and serendipitous uh, we were offering a vendor based trading platform to end users they'd made a new release and i was horrified to see that release because i remember that it only worked on ie6 Ah. in 2015 or maybe 2014 <laughs> and that was completely unacceptable at that point that we would build our own online trading platform wasn't even a question it wasn't even on a road map then you know picked angular js that turned out to be a disastrous decision <laughs> you know there was this angular v1 v2 fiasco yeah, yeah, that, that, it was JS a non js thing angular js angular all that stuff this yeah the version change uh, they rewrote it in typescript and stuff all of that yeah lots of things were happening yeah. and we found it to be it's a complex framework also it's yeah. not very easy to grasp but v1 of kite uh, our first end user web app in that sense trading platform uh, was written in angular js python backend uh, redis and postgres but angular we immediately regretted it was so painful and difficult and hard and just a year later we rewrote the entire thing in vue js today vue js is our uh, basic our web app stack for the front end and 2017 is when digital signatures became a thing now you could open a stock broking account online mm. Pri- prior to 2017 you know we'd courier you like a 40 page booklet you had to do 40 50 signatures scan print yeah, yeah, yeah. xerox i say say direct way of doing things yeah, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and that was the only possible way yeah. there was no legal way to open an account online it had to be offline so you can imagine that the industry was very slow because uh-huh. who would want a courier then you make one mistake miss one signature it gets couriered back to you so the drop off rates were like 98% i think <laughs> then digital signatures happened mm-hmm. we could generate a pdf from the back end people could just you know with a few clicks do a digital signature and no more couriering of you know documents that's when it really started picking up you know online investments as a thing post 2017 this was also a time when we as the scale up happened this was also a time when we started facing a lot of uh issues downtime issues because all of these things that we were building in house were on top of legacy systems that the industry was using anyway like oms the order management platform the back office system and the mega projects that we were handling was to take all of these pieces in house and uh, write them from from scratch it was like glued to legacy most yeah, of the yeah 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 so even if you're let's say you're a bank and you release a great looking net banking app the underlying system would be you know like a very legacy core banking system right. and you'll have to start replacing pieces bit by bit so the most amount of work that we'd done back then was uh, on the one hand we, we we were doing product engineering building new features you know new ui new ux on the other hand we were replacing these really dirty messed up legacy systems 
and nine out of ten things that went wrong when we had downtimes were issues in these legacy systems which were completely outside of our control so that was extremely frustrating uh in 2013-14 i i was experimenting with go uh, it was a newish pro programming language at that point and i was experimenting because you know i felt like you know i was just tinkering tinkering around so we had this one particular use case for the trading platform where uh you know you log into the trading trading platform you see your stocks here in your watch list they tick in real time right so they they can tick two three times a second and you can add a bunch of things so that whole that's a live tcp connection right. web socket connection and you have to push tick packets to it now python wasn't ideal for that so i i experimented with web socket libraries in java c++ a bunch of things even node js uh to find the right tool for the right job but didn't want c++ to be added to the stack you can build anything in c++ but it's complex and yeah, painful you have to write a lot of code and yeah and, and to grasp the lot of code that is written later on is what i feel with c++ absolutely and and people can write it in completely different styles yeah, yeah, yeah. using completely different <laughs> sub technologies and it it's not great in that sense yeah. and i was experimenting with go and go was a you know maybe a beta language or oh, no I, i think it was 1.0 but it wasn't big but i'd liked it and it had great concurrency primitives and concurrency is, is what you need to handle lots of live web socket connections so i thought you know what this piece i will write in go and that became the first go program that we wrote uh, in our tech stack so everything was python python backend you know python data crunching python web servers suddenly we had this one go program that was that would accept web socket connections and stream right and that gave me personally some confidence and experience in writing a go program for a production use case and i mean our scale was really today we have let's say million plus users who log in and trade at the same time back then we had let's say 3000 so you can't even compare right and that 3000 suddenly became 5000 10000 15000 20000 50000 concurrent users you know as online account opening went up so we go was turned out to be a great choice for live uh, low latency not sub nanosecond not in that terms but let's say sub ms uh, request response stuff uh, super low on resources easy to write easy to deploy and go from handling just that one ticking piece you know suddenly started making its way into other pieces <laughs> some python pieces we rewrote in go right and a lot of bottlenecks lots of chokes that we were experiencing you know disappeared then it turned out that go was a great choice for uh, the stuff that we were doing which is handling huge amounts of requests per second responding to requests in milliseconds and suddenly most of the applications that we had web backend applications that were written in python that were handling uh, front end requests and user requests became go and go became an integral part of our stack so that transition has been happening and the biggest to then you know complexity increased uh, we we were running a large number of applications not microservices per se but you know services so kite the trading platform is a collection of let's say three or four you know large services completely independent now when you have services they need to communicate uh, and yeah. this is a data business do you have a customer database the data has to be synchronized to the trading platform to the back office platform to the compliance platform synchronization webhooks etc were becoming a pain you like it's time to have a message centralized message bus and suddenly kafka became uh, a part of a centralized message bus 
and we are to the number of ticks activity subscriptions etc increase so today let's say we are broadcasting 50 60 million ticks per second yeah. to websocket connections so when we were slowly growing to that point you know we wanted ticks to be uh, moved around in the backend uh, through our systems before, before they they were broadcast to our websockets nats turned out to be a yeah. you know a great piece they're super easy to run super lightweight just run it works forever and and the stack has largely stayed the same it's go python for stuff postgres redis uh, kafka nats and all performing what they do best just because we are writing a new program you know it won't use kafka just because we have kafka we'll only use kafka for synchronizing you know one way data synchronization or whatever and uh lately we we've exhausted what postgres can do i think <laughs> so i don't think we want to store a trillion rows in postgres you know shard etc then at some point you are now fighting the database so i've been keeping an eye on clickhouse as a database for the last 5 or 6 years since pre alpha and i think one or two years ago cloudflare published a blog saying they use clickhouse and it was a beautiful blog i really yeah, like cloudflare yeah. engineering the same blogs. as well yeah, yeah. events uh, storing exactly. all the events correct, doing correct, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. so that was my point of validation for clickhouse that i was looking for and turns out clickhouse uh, reduced uh, reduces our storage space of several terabytes by let's say 90% uh, and uh, queries that would take maybe one or two seconds which is really slow for us yeah uh, suddenly became 2 milliseconds So it turns out it's a great database for storing massive amounts of immutable financial transactional data. So now that's a big part of our stack and we're moving lots of things. So whenever and moving terabytes of data, moving hundreds of billions of rows of data that we've built over years to a whole new database, it's not an easy decision. Right, right. But we know that that short-term pain that we will face right now uh, will help us for the next many, many years. Right. So that's how the tech stack evolves. when there's a solid objective use case saying we need to introduce this new technology it will fix all these problems then we introduce that so today if you look at the tech stack it largely looks like this flutter for mobile apps vue js for the you know web apps uh, go backends some python backends and lots of python for data crunching postgres clickhouse redis that's about it right so we never think of concepts like microservice or monolith or whatever you don't you write software you don't exactly. write architecture conceptual architectural frameworks right so let's say you have a problem to solve you and and we work with linux all the programs are linux programs so you you write a program that linux program that works on linux that is super easy to deploy if it's a single binary great if it needs two different programs all right but it'll never require 10 different pieces there'll be no 10 microservices correct so you start out by writing software that solves a problem then you start out by making it run on linux because that's your environment then you probably add a web server it has if it has to you know interact with the outside world if it has to communicate with another uh, program elsewhere you evaluate should it be a web hook or can we just connect it to a you know one way kafka bus or whatever correct correct and you start always from one linux program and slowly expand it outwards exactly as it grows maybe it'll split into two or three programs maybe the technology will change maybe websocket will become something else it doesn't matter but you don't start out by saying that serverless you know this managed services etc and uh, like you pointed out we are very wary of managed services don't want to be vendor locked in the regulatory agility that we need as in there's a regulation you have a five day deadline you need to change everything we need complete control right. over our data over our over every aspect of our stack 
So we don't use any managed databases. All these mega massive instances, database instances, they're all self-hosted. Just spin up a Linux system and you know you run Postgres or whatever and it's all managed by, everything is managed by a team of let's say one, two to three people. Right. And we self-host absolutely almost everything even our HRMS employee leave management system, in employee intranet, everything. It's you know self-hosted instances of ERP Next, financial stuff, data crunching stuff, trading platform stuff. And over the years, we've rewritten and gotten rid of all the old legacy external dependencies and brought everything in-house. And I think it's a, we don't do justice to, let's say, Postgres. Beautiful, brilliant piece of software when we think that, oh, who will manage Postgres? Uh, most organizations will not have to store half a trillion you know, <laughs> uh, rows. Probably you'll have to store a million or a few million rows. And it's absolutely fine. These are all robust technologies that right. you can easily run on a simple Linux uh, system. So, so I think people are afraid uh, to take responsibility for software. <laughs> and the cost that you pay is vendor lock-in, humongous amounts of financial cost. I know that, so our CRM, right? It's... Uh, it's, we use ERP Next and Frappe heavily to build all these dashboards. Uh, if you aren't aware, uh, it's an ERP system, Indian open source project. Yes, yes, I have seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And at some, we were so smitten by it, we so appreciated it that we became investors in the company. We funded it as a FOSS company at some point. So just the open source ticketing system that we've been using for many years, it looks a little ugly, but it's fast. Thousand people log in every day. So you know, Zeroda has a thousand people today. Uh, outside tech, uh, lots of people who have to pick up the phone and answer financial queries, compliance, legal, you know, documents. Uh, and it works well. It runs on one server. Once a year, we log in to archive data. And that's a thousand people, right? And I know how much SaaS ticketing solutions cost per user. Right, right, so right. Just on our CRM, just on our ticketing system, we are saving millions of dollars every year just on these two things and right. we self-host i don't know maybe a hundred different things yeah. right lots and lots of things and it's the same 30 people who build systems who build end user products who also maintain these in-house systems yeah and maintenance is you know sometimes you log in once a year sometimes it's running for many years you don't yeah, have yeah, to yeah yeah and and people also i think it's a tendency to not look at risk holistically some systems can go down. I mean, let's say it's an internal dashboard. So what if it's down for 10 minutes or an hour? It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect anything. But that that everything has to be always up 100%. We need a managed SaaS for that. That FOMO, that irrational FOMO also drives a lot of these decisions. But for sure, uh, we are a profitable enterprise today and a significant amount of our profit margins come from our decisions to self-host and keep the stack clean. Right. Our you know, AWS bill, we use AWS heavily for our, you know, uh, hosting applications is laughable. It's not even, our annual bill is probably not even like an Instagram campaign for many startups. That's how it's low true. the bill is. And all of these things play into the future of the organization, right? If you want a sustainable organization where tech is nimble, you're regulatory nimble, you're actually making profits and you just need a few people to handle and run everything, uh, it, it all plays in. So it's it's the tech stack uh, but not specifically the tech stack it's the first principles used to construct this tech stack that has really mattered
so i um, absolutely love that you know uh, one of the postgres example as well i think you know, if you are able to scale up to million and then if you reach 100 trillion then <laughs> you'll figure something out yeah. uh, in that space uh, and i have done self manage like they have seen open source projects do their own bug tracking something like redmine or bugzilla yeah works fairly well like I mean, they're probably tracking more bugs than a lot of companies at fairly large scale they're probably tracking more bugs than that yeah why are those probably one ten dollar server and they're running it on that's what we do gitlab sorry i forgot to mention gitlab is a part of a stack huh. that's where we host all our repositories there that's our ci cd system bug tracking issue tracking works really well self-hosted instance of gitlab yeah yeah, yeah. i have burnt my hands on uh managed postgres so we used to run postgres on our uh and this is talking of since on 16 17 our startup and um we did not get into aws because uh, initially it just felt like okay whatever we want to run if we can just uh we were bootstrapped they didn't have a lot of money and, and no investments nothing and then we were fairly young so just to take the risk of okay if you put something on aws there are horror stories out there blogs of people running millions mm-hmm. of dollars in bills so start off something like digital ocean yeah. like okay if you take a five dollar server you're not going to spend more than five dollar because yeah. it's a vps it's yeah. not auto scale or anything yeah. so we started off like that yeah. and our database used to be hosted on our own vps right um and then a couple of years later uh they pitched that we have managed databases now and they poked and prodded us for a few months and like chalo theek hai we'll try it out <laughs> so we tried it out uh problem happened uh some day site was not working but things went down and yeah. you're like trying to debug okay what's happening uh why did it happen okay um everything seems fine we every time we restart the entire uh vps everything works fine yeah but but if there's some spike on on, on the db it it uh, you know the db the managed database it resets the connection and after it resets somehow does not connect hmm. you know okay we're trying to figure out what's happening and uh, keep debugging a few minutes later we are like okay if we copy the url from the api it works if we copy the url from the dashboard it does not work yeah. okay, strange enough yeah, yeah. Uh, so we look at the you know uh, url that's on the dashboard and the one that we just copied like it's the same then there's a copy button on the the web clipping clipboard button right we click on that yeah. we copy and we paste and we see that what is actually shown is not the same thing that is copied because oh, okay. when we click on the copy button it actually makes an api call and fresh gets a fresh one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but the string that is shown there yeah. if you just drag with your mouse and right click and copy you get a wrong one but yeah. if you click the copy button you get the right one and then for an hour or so we did not think that something would be wrong with their database because yeah. so many clients are using they must yeah. be right yeah, yeah. something must be wrong with us <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you have been hacking around you know like you know, the first thing you blame is yourself something yeah. must be wrong in your code yeah. some glue not working yeah. uh, then we like no we will just move back our db we will manage it ourselves this does not happen when we manage it ourselves at least yeah and we realized when we move back we saved a lot of cost and better reliability because this does not happen so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, definitely uh, so you're talking about gitlab as uh, ci cd uh, as well um, i think uh, a lot of people uh, do uh, focus on both in terms of learning and sort of trying to establish like uh, pretty elaborate ci cd setups like you know i code review something here automatically will get deployed everything will work and all of that stuff yeah uh, what i have so far found out i might be wrong is that uh, people uh, spend a lot of their day trying to chase that utopia without actually achieving that utopia i agree <laughs> yeah uh, so how does your ci cd stack look like uh, right now like how do you deploy things and all this maintenance and stuff how does it happen it's quite simple like you said you know people put in a lot of effort into the process of achieving the finest most automated slickest ci cd pipeline and that's just wasted effort at the end of the day you you're working on software 
and there's a new version of the software and you have to get it somewhere mm. that's about it i mean yeah. everything else and and a simple good enough path so our cid cicd system is actually quite uh, simple we have a job file for many of these repositories and uh, lot lots of them we created a template that many repositories can use so that people understand how different repositories are working so for go programs when stuff is pushed to gitlab there's an automated you know lint plus test that runs and just a common sense sanity check then there's a build step that compiles the go binary and dumps it to uh, s3 right. you know some designated bucket right so that is really the build system really <laughs> done and then we have another deploy step and for critical applications that is manual for us uh, we don't really care about you know deploying 100 things in a day but every deployment because of the risk we are extremely 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 careful about deployments right so insane amounts of testing weeks and months so that step for most of our critical apps is manual you have to go click a button you know that little play button on the gitlab ui and that is when the actual app will get deployed now the deployment environment we wanted a uniform environment uh, for all our applications and we tried out kates as a uniform a deployment environment where you know people can write a manifest yaml file and you know it'll 80% 90% it'll work for all different projects because otherwise otherwise people roll their own deployment build <laughs> schemas and you know it becomes non uniform over time but uh, that didn't really work out kates turned out to be insanely complex there were you know yaml manifest within yaml manifest within yaml <laughs> manifest and we had to write tools to make sense of these manifests so that pilot you know we phased out and uh, sorry i forgot to mention this nomad hashicorp ha- uh, hashicorp's nomad yeah. as a orchestration plus deployment stack is something we piloted and we are deploying everywhere now okay so we've written a and and hashicorp's nomad is really simple it's not like kates which is like a full fledged cloud operating system in that sense nomad is an orchestrator you say you need you know 10 number of ec2 instances and this binary should be copied to these 10 instances and they should run and port 5000 will be exposed you know it's simple and the nomad job file kind of looks like a simple nginx file also very easy to understand probably yeah. 20 30 lines of code and you have this environment so this binary that is dumped in s3 when the deployment happens uh, this nomad script is run and nomad is keeping track of n number of ec2 instances running for let's say kite ticker or some other program requires you know these other instances it will instantly pull the binary from s3 and uh, copy to the right location via ssh uh, nomad agents run and it'll send a you know a signal to restart the app and deployment happens so nomad is great in that sense because that all that orchestration of pulling your program from somewhere copying it to the right ec2 instances managing ec2 instances or managing managing an automated restart all of that nomad handles so there's that before we had nomad before we had kates it was just manually created ec2 instances and some simple uh, script would copy the program dump it there and do a restart right at the end of the day no matter how sophisticated your uh, ci cd system is it's a linux linux program that is going to be killed or you know <laughs> sighubbed or restarted that's it yeah, yeah yeah so you don't change your perspective from that so we use nomad to clean it up and make uniform man- deployment templates across all our projects so people know that what is happening and it works well so cicd is really simple upload to github test runs build is created and put pushed to an s3 bucket the s3 bucket could be an ec2 instance it doesn't matter it's all simple pluggable 
And from there, when we press the deploy button for critical apps, Nomad will pick up the uh, program binary, Go binary or a Python program or whatever, copy to n number of EC2 instances that we've configured to run and you know send the reload signal. Right, right, right. That makes sense. I mean, I have gone through that go to Kubernetes and come back thing myself as well. I figured uh, for me, it was like more drastic, like go to Kubernetes, come back to just Docker compose file. That's enough. <laughs> like one Docker compose, deploy everything on a single server. Yeah. That would work. Uh, so that's uh, great. And uh, I've been asking a lot of questions. I'll just have one last one. Uh, right. Um, so uh, this is about, uh, and I had seen, uh, uh, I think last year's HasGeek even where I talked about scaling with common sense. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I think there's a last piece around that tech stack I would want to ask, uh, which is not about particular technologies, but uh, let's say you've seen, you know, starting with, you know, a few hundred users to millions. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, scale, obviously, across all of your systems don't work linearly. Like everything Correct. does not just scale to 10 times because you just scale to 10 times. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, when somebody's building software, yeah. uh, right, uh, I mean, there is obviously the age-old debate about premature scaling and all. Yeah. But pragmatically, what are the some of the things one should keep in mind? Uh, like what will happen if things scale? What should I not do so that I don't burn myself with scale? Yeah. But also like not overcomplicate things. So, uh, again, no easy answer. Yeah. Uh, it's a first principle-based approach. Your decisions have to be as less wrong as possible. It's very difficult to make long-term right decisions with technology. Right. So, le as less wrong as possible. Now, let's say you need a database and you pick Postgres, which is battle-tested. Now, that's actually a decent decision. You know that people have scaled Postgres databases to massive scale. So, it's not a complete unknown. Redis, for example, if you were to pick some sort of a cache or in-memory database, you could just pick Redis because it's so well documented that Redis is battle-tested to kind of work forever. Right, right. So when you pick these pieces to add to your stack, you pick pieces objectively and carefully. Right. And assembling the stack is like 80% of the work. If you pick the wrong database, then you're kind of screwed. You will have right. to rewrite your app, you know, you can't migrate. So just care careful consideration and... Uh, in, in which you pick robust technologies, right tools for the right job before you even start writing code, is that. And maybe there are other considerations also. So I cited this example of using Go, which was a hobby uh, tinkering project for me to write a production uh, ticker program, right. a live market ticker uh, for, for a trading platform. Could have, we were, Python was a stack and there were other things like C++, etc. But this just turned out to be the best tool for that job. Although it wasn't a part of that stack, decided to introduce that language into the stack. So sometimes you have to make those decisions. Maybe you know Python really well, but the task at hand requires something where Go is better suited. So maybe that decision to pick the right tool for the right job, foregoing our familiarity, that also factors in. So sense. it's a bunch of uh, these things. Then of course, you shouldn't start out, you know, people have this tendency to start build things for 10 million users that will never ever come <laughs> so we have to be extremely grounded and realistic right. uh, so that realism will automatically translate to an architecture where it's good enough to scale to a certain point uh, and after that if you really need to scale it should it would be modular enough to you know kill replace swap etc but if you are going to build something for 100 million users or 10 million users on day one your entire architecture you're going to focus so much on those invisible ghosts and problems that right. you will never be able to focus on your business logic or product. 
So keeping things modular. And speaking of modularity, uh, we also touched upon risk earlier, where people think that every system has to be 100% up all the time. That's never the case. So that is also an important factor. When you design software, when you design an architecture, uh, we should allow modules to fail gracefully for worst case scenarios. For example, on a trading platform, not all features are equally important. Maybe there are a lot of, you know, let's say charting features, etc. Worst case scenario, people should be able to see their portfolio, buy and sell, etc. And maybe a certain charting feature not working is acceptable. But the site should not crash because of that. Exactly. So when you think of it that way, when you look at your software holistically and decide that this is the most critical function, this has to have 100% uptime. Right. But, you know, this can have 99, this can have 98 this doesn't actually matter, then you automatically architect your system to fail gracefully and modularly. Just because this fails doesn't mean the entire thing should Make should sense. fail. And just because this fails, it doesn't mean that your business is affected. So that grading modules of a product or a technology stack and letting them fail gracefully will also make your system robust. By doing that, you're automatically making them pluggable and swappable. So we are swapping out Postgres for ClickHouse today despite having massive databases. But, you know, that's how it allows, that modularity kind of allows you to do that. Right. And you don't mix concerns. Like if you invent, let's say you pick a NoSQL database and if you have to do a lot of relational reporting, you write, end up writing huge amounts of business logic and app code in your app. In memory joins. you. Yeah, in memory joins. You reinvent SQL in your thing. Then you are, that's not modular. You can't swap it out. You put in so much effort here. So you should know that, you know, SQL is the right thing to do it. And I'll, you know, offload it to SQL. Because it's SQL tomorrow, when you switch, uh, let's say swap out another SQL DB, with minor tweaks, you can port all your business logic. So it's being modular. And I'm not talking about monolith service, microservice, but modular in architecture is important. Right, right. And this modularity should never be, should, I mean, I'm stressing, should never be visualized in terms of hosted services. Oh, no, you know, function here, edge thing here, some, you know, SNS queue here, whatever. It should be visualized in terms of, let's say, Linux software. And modular in design rather than modular in implementation. I mean, if it is in design, the implementation will follow suit. Exactly. Modular not in terms of external services, but the software's own architecture. So when I see, whenever I see architecture diagrams where someone is proposing a product and, you know, it's full of, let's say, managed services from a certain cloud, it's, you know, there's a high probability that, you know, it turns out to be disastrous because they've designed their software to be entirely dependent on completely external facets, which you have little control of. But if you're writing software, you should focus on software, make it as self-contained as possible and only give away control to external services and resources if you absolutely need. Right, right. I think a factor there, I, I would say a lot of people do not consider also is, uh, I was giving a talk recently at a conference about microservices and I was saying that, okay, uh, and then there was a nice case study, uh, a more than made on Twitter, which was like, if you insert load balances, uh, yeah. let's say you have a monolith, yeah. and you separate the data layer and the controller layer out, yeah. okay, and you have a load balancer between them, yeah. so that data layer has its own load balancer now, right? Um, suddenly the architecture looks, oh, nice. I have separated my concerns. And, you know, if somebody hits the controller layer, it will probably not fail. I can scale it more. Data layer is separate. But then without giving any other context, like discussing anything further, 
uh how much does this affect the availability hmm. uh and it will, like if you just simply take like p90 and p90 in every layer you just added a new layer it will go down it will, yeah, it will yeah. it does not by default go up yeah yeah now you doing that extraction yeah if you actually put in effort into making the availability higher because of that extraction maybe you don't need to reach the data layer for a lot of use cases yeah then maybe you get an advantage yeah but if you don't then the default is you lose out absolutely and then the other piece is also uh, and, and that was part of what i was explaining in the talk is like there were a lot of people who were you know founders of tech companies and then they were talking about like whether they need to do microservices or not yeah. and i was telling them that what's very important is the the boundaries you draw in your system you need to draw the correct ones yeah. uh, i was giving them an example like if you have it's a blogging app if you have let's say the api layer the business logic layer and the data layer if you separate at this way yeah like all the apis in one service all the business logic in one service all the data hmm. what will happen is between them each hop will have a deserialization serialization penalty yeah whether inside your system or <laughs> outside the yeah, penalty yeah, would be there absolutely right yeah. and but if you split by features let's say yeah. and let's say if if user sign in is not available so my user service is down yeah. but still people can publicly you know like index the articles google search works and your article reading works yeah. that's a much better split you a don't get the penalty of the deserialization serialization yeah. second you are split it across things which you need and not need rather than exactly. <laughs> layer layer you have to grade those modules to fail independently and as gracefully as possible yeah so dependency is one of the biggest bottlenecks a dependency and every network dependency that you have is a you know is is prone to disaster and failure and if you have a system where you have lots of services all of them speak to each other over network mesh etc right something goes wrong you can't even debug <laughs> so uh, software should be as self contained as possible by default so that that's why it's problematic saying i'll start out with a monolith or i'll start out with the microservice architecture there's no such thing as a microservice architecture that works for all software all people all teams all business all environments around the world it's just it's just a loose name it's a vague name for a loose set of concepts <laughs> right you may end up writing many services you may end up with just one service or software but you don't know that entirely depends on so many factors that are so private and intimate you know to a certain business so there are no universal architectures that just work right yeah. right right uh, i think thanks for answering all the questions the last question one of the answers the takeaway i think really great where you said that you know uh, let's not think about writing microservice let's write software i think yeah. I, i hope that that becomes a very important takeaway uh, from this uh, but once again you know thanks for coming here spending the time and this conversation i really really hope it will spark some motivation to build things for people build software write software <laughs> absolutely Th- thank you thank you so much it was a fun chat Thank you, and thank and you. I think I vented quite a bit. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks for providing me with an avenue to vent. Thank you. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks.